Here we are with Here my are, friend George. Nigel Mohammed. Thank you so much for coming again, Nigel. It's been a, it's been over a year since we did part one, and now we're gonna do chapter two of your story. And just to tell our friends, you know who you are. You're a teacher. You're a great mentor of men. Um, you're many other things. You're a writer. But my memory of you, my experience of you in the beginning is when you were running a men's group in Worthing. That I mean, I didn't even know you at the time, but you guys were looking into the father wound and. And you just turned to me because I wasn't connecting with the material. I was doubting. I said, what are these guys talking about? I don't have a father wound. Um, but you just said to me in a very compassionate way, but sharp. You said, sooner or later, George, you, you're going to have to face it. And then you introduced me to Gordon Dalby, um, whose books and material is, is fundamental to my development. So mm. thank you for all those years of friendship, of mentorship. And here we are now. We want you to tell more about yourself, about your story, about what made you who you are. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Thanks, George. Uh, thanks for a really good intro and bigging me up. I've got to live. I've got to live up to it now, haven't I? <laughs> so, yeah, this is chapter two, and um, it's been a while. It, it was July twenty twenty two, actually. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, yeah, twelve, well, about fourteen months actually. So I was twenty, I think, when we um, at the end of uh, part one of my story. So yeah, I'm twenty now. Um, sort of picking it up and I've just come out of prison. I was in Yugoslavia, hitchhike around Europe when I was 19 with a mate of mine and um, wanted adventure, you know, really wanted adventure. So I got the adventure, just not the adventure that I was wanting. <laughs> but it was still an experience, you know, and, um, uh, you know, I came back and we moved up to London. And so I was living in London at, at 20 and, uh, you know, in Clapham, South London. Did you live by yourself? No, no. Uh, we had a bed set, me and, me and my friend Pete. Same guy? Yeah, yeah, same guy that I'd hitched around Europe with and was in prison with, although not in the same cell. You yeah. Know, we were separate. Um, so we, we had a bed set in um, Clapham South in South London, near Ballam. Okay. And... Um, you know, because we didn't want to go back to our hometown. You know, they'd heard, they'd heard about, you know, the prison and it was like people coming up to us all the time. I got a bit tired of it. So um, I'm living in London uh, and I eventually got a job in the King's Road uh, in a warehouse uh, of this, uh, this big shop, this kind of lighted emporium shop in uh, King's Road which is interesting because it was just around the corner from Stamford Bridge and we were both Chelsea supporters. Okay. So that was, that was interesting. Um, and my mate uh, had a job in an antique restorer shop just down the road, you know. So he was a close friend at the time, my mate Pete. Um, you know, we hung out together. We used to go out to football matches. Then we hitchhiked around Europe and was in prison and then had this place in London, as I say. And he even ended up getting jobs just down the road from each other in in, uh, in King's Road. Mm. So um, it didn't last though. Um, it, it was in a, a kind of in a warehouse because at the time, you know, I had no qualifications when I left school and um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, I tried to get in the Merchant Navy when I was about 16 when I left school, but I didn't get in because I didn't have any qualifications and, and I was really disappointed actually, quite gutted. So I really wanted to do it. And I really wanted adventure even then, just after I left school, you know. But it didn't happen. So 
no qualifications. I didn't know really what I wanted to do. And the job in London, in Kings Road, it didn't last. Um, I just gave it up. And um, You mean you suddenly just wanted not to have a job and not have money? Um, I just... I was kind of ruled by my impulse. I was very impulsive. You just didn't feel like working. No, no, it, it, <laughs> it's not that. Because um, I, you know, I, I was actually a labourer on the building sites as well because I did get other jobs on building sites. Afterwards? Yeah, afterwards, yeah. Okay. So, I, so, I mean, in fact, most of my 20s, I was basically an unskilled labourer. Okay. I worked on building sites, you know, and you know, factories, building sites. But I hated it. Right. I, I wanted more. Yeah. And yet, I, I didn't know what. You know what I mean? Interesting. Yeah, I wanted more and I felt that I could do more. Well, I, there was only a little bit of me that believed I could do more, but I, I thought, if, man, if this is it, if this is life for the next 40 years, I don't want it, you know. Because <laughs> um, I didn't enjoy any of the jobs, really. But anyway, um, there, I mean, there was a two or three things, big things going on in my life at that time, actually. Okay. My mother, I'd come back from the States. She'd been living in America for quite a few years. And um, I hadn't seen her since I was 13. And uh, even then, I only saw her for about half an hour at Gatwick Airport when she emigrated to uh, Santa Monica. So she lived there with the guy. She'd married this Irish guy, had a little baby. So they had their little family. They went to America. <clears throat> and then suddenly she comes up, she turns up in my life again. So even when I was 13, I hadn't seen her for quite a long time anyway. So it was really surreal meeting my this stranger who was my mother, who'd come back. Um, I mean, you know, hitchhiking around Europe, I got turned on to dope, smoking dope as well. You know, and I was, I was changing, actually. I was changing. I started going for walks in the forest, things like that. And, and I, I was living in London, but I, I just was like changing. I got into poetry and... Was it a hippie thing? Well, I did actually then become a bit of a hippie right. a bit later on. You know, but I was, I didn't realise what was going on, but I was changing from when I was a reckless, you know, violent, reckless, lost, insecure teenager, getting in trouble with the police all the time, into sort of football, foot hooliganism, what have you, a little bit. But in, it, when I was 20, that big shift going on, you know, living in London, what have you. Um, and I, I stopped the job, gave up the job in London. I was unemployed. I just walked around the streets of London every day. How did you find money? I, I gave out leaflets. I just got some job for some firm. It was like a sales thing, knocking on people's doors. Uh, I used to go out of London with them <clears throat> in their cars and just try and sell stuff. It was a sales job of some kind. I can't remember what. Right, so you had some work. Yeah, yeah, I had some work. But I, again, I hated it. You know, I hated knocking on doors mm. trying to sell stuff. You know, <laughs> didn't like it. Again, you know, it didn't last long as well. Um, but I was searching as well, and I didn't know what. I was, something was going on quite deep, you know. We, it was weird meeting my mum. She lived in a place called Caterham in Surrey, yeah? And I'd get the train to go and see her. But it was so weird going to see my mum. She's a complete stranger. So only one time you met her? Well, I... No, no, I met her and, and she's living in Caterham. So I went to see her and I went to see her a few times. Oh, I see. You know. But it was so weird because I'm going into this family unit and I didn't have a family. Hmm. You know, I grew up in a large you know, 
chaotic foster home. And I'm going into this family unit, this stranger who's my mother, she's moved back from America, married to this Irish guy, and they got a little baby. It just felt so weird. I was just a fish out of water, really was. Mm. And it was so surreal, so kind of like fallen, mm. you know? So I don't belong in this situation, you know? So it wasn't easy. And I'd go, and I was actually smoking dope at the time as well, but also thinking about, is there a God? What is life really about? Because I hate these jobs that I'm doing, you know. I see. Uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm quite insecure. And, um, but what was happening was <clears throat> I was getting into more drugs. Uh, and it was like, they call it a gateway drug, yeah. So you started with marijuana, but then there was more, there was more. Yeah, yeah, and I said I never would. I, did, I said I wouldn't even get into dope, you know, but I did. <laughs> um, and even then I said, no, nah, there's no way I'm going to take anything else, but I did. Because it is, it, it, you know, there is some truth that, it, you know, well, like the gateway drug, because it leads to other things. So what did it lead to? Well, it led to, you know, speed, you know, LSD, magic mushrooms, um, you know, lots of different drugs. I, I never injected, but it became a lifestyle. Um, most of my 20s. Right. I mean, looking back, uh, I, you know, I guess in some weird way, I felt I belonged to that kind of lifestyle, you know? So that's the closest, those people with the drug, the closest that you found to a community, yeah, like yeah. a family unit. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I kind of attached to them in a way, you know what I mean? Um, you know, and all of my friends started, you know, I, I realized, uh, were actually also into drugs. So it became a lifestyle. Yeah. Hmm. Well, no wonder you were wondering about God, because <laughs> if, if you don't fit into family, if you don't fit into your work, yeah. and this is the best you can get in terms of your druggy friends, yeah. then no wonder you are not satisfied. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point, you know, so you, you haven't got any foundations there, really. It's easy to question things then. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, you're, you're very vulnerable to just grabbing whatever works for you. Yeah, I'll, I'll just go for that, you know. And you're numbing the pain, really, inside. You don't realise it at the time. So, yeah, no, that's a good point. It's like, no foundation, no family. Who am I? I don't know. No identity. Um, you know... I'll go for this. Oh, that feels good. That's a bit of a turn on, a bit of a high. So it became a lifestyle. But so in I, your 20s, this is what you did? Yeah, I, in my 20s. What about a girl? Did you have a girlfriend? Uh, well, I did in my teenage years, but I didn't really have... Not in, the, in your 20s? Not in my 20s. I mean, there was lots of girls that I really fancied and was really drawn to, but I, um, I was very rootless and I was always moving. Okay. I was constantly moving. In fact, you know, I mean, I, I counted once how many times I've moved. Uh, 50 or 60 times, you know. Goodness me. Uh, not I'm just in my 20s. No. But, yeah. you know, going into my 30s, <laughs> or as, you know, what have you. But over a certain period of time. Yeah, that's a lot of times. Mm. Right? And, you know, what's that about? You know, very rootless. Didn't know where I belonged. So, you know, that was what was going on. Um, so I was very, uh, kind of an insecure child really isn't it an insecure kid in my 20s so did you ever feel like a man in your 20s 
No. I'm asking because I never did, but but uh, you had a different. Oh no way! Upbringing. Not at all. Didn't have a didn't have a Scooby Doo mate. And how did you Didn't cover with that? Because that, that little child, for example, in my life, yeah. I cover just by being a nice guy, you know, just trying to fit in. But I hated that little child because he just couldn't be strong. How did you cover him? What? So in terms of manhood, how did you cover that? That little boy feeling young. Well. Mm. Man, that's a heavy question, George. Because obviously I, I wasn't realise I was doing that at the time. I, I think dope. So you covered that. I, I think I was. I, I felt so insecure, so inadequate. That little boy. I wasn't aware that I was. It was a little boy, but I felt so inadequate. I didn't know. I couldn't work with my hands. I was a labourer. I was an unskilled labourer in between being unemployed. And, and taking drugs more and more, and it was becoming a lifestyle. So in terms of what I did with that little boy and how do I cover him, how did I cover him? Drugs, I guess. And just rootlessness. Um, but the drug style, the drug lifestyle, uh, style, I guess, kind of gave me a very false but destructive sense of belonging to something. Mm. And that made me feel like, oh, this feels good. I've got some good mates. Um, I guess it felt like family, you know? And, and so I didn't have to feel that lacerating pain of feeling an inadequate, insecure, lost little boy, mm. which I did actually, deep inside. I think the lifestyle of drugs is what was covering that in answer to your question, really. So, I, I, you know, I just lived in different places and going from job to job and, you know. Um, yeah. So, and I'm asking this because in my case, you know, when I was feeling that little boy and I was feeling, I hated that little boy in me. And um, at this time in my 20s, well, maybe a little bit earlier, but with me, I felt alienated to, towards everything, including because I used to be into nature. So I, I started, to, no, that's not where I belong because I killed that little boy who was yeah. supposed to be connecting it, um, yeah. me to nature. Sure. And, and then when I go to other people's families, I'm like, no, that's not, that's not me. I, I didn't have a family unit like that to, to bond to, like, uh, even though I did have a family. Mm. Um, and then I would take drugs and drink and then find women. So that was my thing. I was, uh, mm. you know, I was going towards that. Yeah. Uh, pleasure and just bliss. The bliss. Just I just want to almost like I want mommy. <laughs> I yeah. want that female <clears throat> love and attention. But there were moments in when I would be sober and it really would hit me. You know. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah. Just a sorrow. There was underlying sorrow. Yeah. Like with many people, they let down their guard in that way. Um, there's anger with me. The first thing was sorrow, yeah. always. So what in those sober moments when I when you just looked around and I'm like, mm. and you were like, oh, look at my life. What was the first underlying emotion that would ambush you, if you can remember? I I just felt so lost. I didn't have an occupation, qualifications, any tangible source of security. Uh, living from place to place. Living by instinct. I was in survival mode. So the emotion was... So the emotion was... I just feel lost. I felt inadequate. I felt deeply insecure and... 
just lost. It's like, what am I supposed to be doing with so my questioning. life? Questioning. Questioning is like, I don't know what to do with my life. I felt really, yeah, the emotions were painful in terms of feeling so lost. And I, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm living by instinct. <clears throat> lost. But also, I guess I was angry as well. I had an anger. Sadness, a deep sadness, thinking about different things. But you didn't allow yourself to feel that too often, did you? Well, sometimes I had certain friends where, you know, I had meaningful conversations with some people. Because in hippie circles, you know, you do kind of philosophize a little bit right, yeah. about life, you know what I mean? So it's a different conversation now from a football culture. Yeah, you talk about different things of society, of life, and of like, you know, because it's kind of anti-establishment. You don't realise you're becoming anti-establishment. But, yeah, so the emotions um, <clears throat> were um, confusion, I guess, uncertainty, the pain of, like, I don't know who I am, and I don't feel good at anything, mm. and how that cripples you deep sense of inadequacy, insecurity, you know? That's what I was feeling, very wow. deep down inside. And so if you just look at your life in your 20s, your early 20s, mm. um, just to, so it's you living in your flat in London with your friend, drifting, and, and then every now and again seeing your mom yeah. um, for a while and smoking dope and taking other drugs eventually. Yeah, I mean, I am thinking about other things of life, you know, thinking about God and Okay, so that's drugs. where because of the questioning, that's where that's what led you to God eventually. I mean it goes with hippie circles in a way. In well, you know, not just hippie circles, but like I say, the conversations you have. Spirituality. And I'm you know, I mean it's actually quite false, really, to be honest with you. Because it's not true friendship. But nevertheless, I am changing, I didn't realise it at the time, but I'm thinking about God and spirituality and things like that. So there's a lot, lot going on, man. You know, I, I start walking through the forest, I start reading different types of books. I'm starting reading books I thought I'd never, I thought, you know, I'd never read those kind of books. Like what? Well, sort of philosophy books. You know, um, books about philosophy, psychology books. Wow. You know, oh. Carl Jung. Oh. You know, but, uh, you know... I've got his biography over there. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> but I'm reading Carl Jung at 20. Wow. At 21. Wow. I think, and, and it's like, whoa, this is big changes, you know. Who else did you? You know, well, you know, um, oh, there was a German guy. Nietzsche? No, no, no. Um, Hermann Hess, I think his name was. I, I can't, yeah, I think his name was Hermann Hess. Existentialism. Oh, right. Kafka. Franz Kafka. Right. Um, and just philosophy, different philosophy stuff. Getting into a bit of poetry, trying to express myself. Actually really enjoying walking through the forest, you know. Wow. Thinking, whoa, okay. I guess I'm becoming a bit of a hippie, you know. Um, but I mellowed out, you know, from when I was a, an aggressive teenager. I'm, I'm obviously dope medish, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but... In those sober moments, it was actually quite painful because I'm having to face reality of like, I'm really quite a lost, insecure little boy, really. 
And because of that, George, those emotions, I didn't have confidence with women. Because I didn't have the confidence to kind of have presence. You know, and I felt a deep sort of inadequacy. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to pursue a woman and actually offer something that is good and strong. You know? Well, it needs to come out of a foundation which you didn't have. <laughs> I didn't have the foundation. So if exactly. you're standing here on, on solid floor, yeah. now I can talk to you, I can address exactly, you. But if I'm yeah. standing on mud and yeah. sinking, I'm worried about sinking, <laughs> I can't see you. Exactly. Properly. That's right, because you've got an insecurity going on. Because you've got yeah. to like, actually, you know, can, we, can this hold us this <laughs> ground? You know? yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? You've got no foundation. So you've got this internal insecurity. And I had that. I was crippled, man with a deep crippling insecurity and inadequacy in my 20s. Numbing it with drugs more and more, going to see my mum, just really lost. She didn't even know I was at my head. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, she didn't know. And she's a stranger to me. You know, I'm a fish out of water. This feels really alien and not great because I don't fit in. It's like, yeah, you're the one who put me in that foster home when I was a kid, weren't you? You know. <laughs> um, and she's trying to like, I guess, make amends for that somehow. Right. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, whatever. Because I, I'm not really. It's not. There's nothing going on in terms of relationship being built. It's not happening. And how long does it <clears throat> did it continue that charade? Because it was like a charade, wasn't it? You meeting her and trying to build a relationship that just wasn't happening. Months or years? Years. Oh, I see. Years. Right, okay. Because we never got to know each other. Right. I mean, it lasted, I mean, she, she died, you know, about six years ago. But it never, you know, obviously we change as we get older, but in terms of a charade, it's an interesting... You never became a family? No, no, not right. at all. Not okay. at all. No, I never, I never moved in with her. I didn't really want to, but um, I, mean, I later found out that actually the guy she was married to didn't actually want me to be part of the family. I found that okay. later on in life when I, after she died a few years ago. Um, but that kind of carried on. So we never really got to know each other. I never, I never got to know about her life in Trinidad, for example. She was from Trinidad, Caribbean island. Mm. Um, so yeah. Very reckless, again, a different type of recklessness in my 20s from my teenagers. You know, whereas it was crime and kind of aggressiveness in terms of football culture, you know, going into that, um, I'm, it's now drug culture. Hmm. Right. But I'm still kind of a little boy, really, inside. Right, you know? right. Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah. Very interesting about that. Um, I'm very interested in your um, conversion to Christianity. Now, first of all, I mean, I know you were questioning, um, but were you like, why Christianity? Were you uh, exploring other religions? Yeah, I was, yeah. Um, I got into the Hare Krishna thing. Really? Yeah, yeah. When I lived in London, mind you, I used to get a free meal. <laughs> and I used to walk miles through London. We used to walk up to Tottenham Court Road from just off the Fulham Road, from um, where we lived, because uh, we had another flat. Because um, uh, my, my friends uh, got a flat and I had a room in his flat. And that was in a plush area of London. But I used to walk from there up to Tottenham Court Road and the Harley Krishna thing. I'd listened to the talks, but I had a free meal. 
Okay, so but you actually, never got into it. Yeah, but I was searching. I never got into it, but I, I was searching. Yeah, you know, I'd listen to their talks uh, and even the Jehovah's Witnesses, they, this kind of group, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. I, 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 you know, met with them. A friend of mine was had become a Jehovah's Witnesses. I got into Christian science. <laughs> Used to re go into the Christian science reading room in London. Wow. Harley Krishnas, Jehovah's Witnesses, <laughs> uh, blah, 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 you know, different things. I, I, I just, because I was changing. I didn't really yeah. know at the time. Why Christianity? I don't know at the time. I mean, I, I just... I think the only way I can answer that, George, is that if what, looking back, it was like something at a deep level was going on, that I was being drawn to something or someone that was actually drawing me. And I didn't realise it at the time. And, you know, I'm like a, a very lost you know, like this term, lost sheep. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I could relate to that. But did you and, uh, meet any people? Did anyone influence you? Well, I went on a drugs binge well, uh, in Amsterdam with some mates. Uh, you know, I was in the drugs, getting into drugs. We went to Amsterdam, as a lot of people do. And, um, but I was getting... You know, looking into other religions, like I said, but I was getting drawn more and more to Jesus. And I don't know why, but another friend of mine was also searching. Another friend of mine at the time, who also was a bit of a hippie and had been smoking dope and all the rest of it. He was also searching. And he was also getting drawn to Christianity and to Jesus. So I used to meet with this guy who became a friend. And he was in from my hometown. But I never moved in his circles. But all of a sudden, I'm hanging out with this guy all the time. Used to meet him over the park and we'd talk, you know, about all kinds of stuff, you know. Now, he, you know, he had a different childhood, nice family, middle-class family, grammar school. I, I'm just completely different. And he lived across the other side of town. But I'm hanging out with him and we're talking about God and and jesus you know so that was actually an important part of that journey your friend yeah my friend there's always someone isn't there? there's always someone so yeah so i had those conversations with that friend um were actually really important because i wasn't just on my own because what was going on inside of me was also happening with with, with my friend wow. who became a good friend actually and um you know, he actually then, he actually gave his life to, to Christ, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he just surrendered his life to Jesus, you know. But just for the, uh, to go back to the background, your name is Mohammed because your mom was well, uh, yeah, Muslim. Yeah, exactly. I'll get off, I'll so ask that quite a lot. Did you ever look into Islam? No, I didn't. Why I, not? I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know why. And I never have done. I don't know why, George. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting, yeah. Yeah, because, um, you know... It's a very masculine uh, movement, Islam. Well, it is. That's right. And a lot of men are drawn, especially black men, they're drawn to Islam because they have a bit of a cause. That's a holy war, you know what I mean? Like, all of that. And it actually is very blatantly masculine, isn't it? Which is not, I mean, you, at least a, I mean? a truth. It's not a bad thing. No, 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 of course it's not. It's not a bad thing at all. But you can, um, what I'm saying is you can understand why Absolutely. certain types of men are drawn. Yeah. It's like, this is, this is quite a clear masculinity here. 
Well, it's Christianity doesn't have that blatant sort of masculine thing. Well, the Western Christianity does. Or the Western Christianity. And I've got a problem with that. I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is not yeah. about you what I both. feel about. <laughs> like... I wanted to, to ask you about, because you mentioned Jesus a lot. So how did you feel, and, I, and I'll explain why I'm asking this. How did you feel about the God as a father? Because um, I have a huge problem with the Jesusification of everything, if there's such a word. Because when you look at churches today, and I don't think it ever was like, it mm. always was this way. Mm. When you look at churches today, um, it's all about Jesus and it's all about Jesus. But they're not very successful, are they, in terms of drawing people, especially men. <coughs> um, but when you look at um, <laughs> when you look at what Jesus stands for, he said, I come to reveal the Father. You've seen, you've seen the Father. So it's like Jesus saying, I come to do the work of Father God and bring people to Father God. But... People seem to be just obsessed with Jesus and forgiveness of sins and making everyone feel guilty about that. But it never progressed into fatherhood because our wound, I don't have a best friend wound. I don't have a brother wound. I have a father wound. You know what I mean? And so do you. And so did you at the time. So how did you feel? I know you're looking into Jesus, but when there was a mention of father in the in the religious settings, like as a father God, how did you feel towards that? Did you have any opinion on that? <clears throat> well, this is a good question, but it's... That's kind of jumping a little bit sure, ahead. Sure. But, and I, I will get to that. Okay. But it's like I'm searching and I'm drawing to, I'm getting drawn to Jesus. Mm -hmm. I'm having conversations with my friend. I'm in the drug scene. I'm smoking dope, blah, blah, blah. And feeling lost, you know, who I am and all the rest of it. Um, that, those conversations became more intense and meaningful to me. Because my friend, um, who was very, he was different. I never moved in his circles, like I said. And it's like, I would naturally not hang out with this guy. You know what I mean? He just lived in a different world to me. Now, he was also a football supporter, you know, but he was quite middle class, but he was a football supporter. You know, the wrong team, obviously. Um, Man United, I, I was Chelsea. But he's talking about Jesus all the time. Right. And I'm getting drawn to Jesus. And... You know, he's like reading books and I'm reading books and we're talking about them. And it's like, this is different from what I'm used to because, okay, yeah, I've got hippie friends as well. And we, you know, we talk about stuff, but it's like, this is all centered on Jesus. And we're getting drawn to this person called Jesus who claimed to be the son of God. It's like, whoa, that's pretty, pretty big, you know. Um, you know, in terms of the father thing, that, that kind of comes a bit later. So... The long and short of it is, George, is that, you know, I got into, like I said, different religions and what have you, but it, it basically got honed down to Jesus. Mm. And look, I don't know why at the time, I was just looking at different religions and thinking, you know what, this Jesus, some of the things he says about himself in the New Testament, it's like, man, this is radical. It's like, um, there was a guy called, um, a Christian writer called C.S. Lewis. And I remember... His biography right there. Oh, right, there you go. <laughs> and I remember he said, he wrote a book, and he said, look, he is either a lunatic, um, something like that, or he's either the Lord. Right? He's either the biggest hoax in history. He's either the biggest liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord of heaven and earth who created the universe and came and died for us. 
So there's no middle ground. And he said, let's be not having anything to do with this patronising nonsense that he's a good teacher. <laughs> right? He is either God Almighty yeah. in the flesh, or it's like, whoa, this is like really major stuff. You know, and these were the things I was thinking about with my friend Andy, okay? It's like, okay, this is something different. Because what he's claiming to be is like, as C.S. Lewis, he's either a lunatic and he's insane, or he is the biggest evil demonic liar ever to walk the earth, or he is the Lord, and you surrender your life to him, because he is God, who's come in the flesh. And it's like, this is radical. And okay. I, I kind of got to that point. So you were reasoning, it was on intellectual level, well, not just as in, well as Not just intellectual, inside. George. I mean, it's like my whole being was engaged with this. Yeah. It, yes, it was in one sense. You know, I was you thinking, wanted to make sense of things first before you... Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. That was really important part of the search. Like I said, I've got into other religions and all the rest of it. And, you know, the Hare Krishna you know, thing. Okay. You know, I, I, like I said, I, you know, I was obviously going to their temple thing yeah. and having food and even went to one of their their, their events, you know, in, in another part of the country. But, uh, yeah, I, I just thought, no, that's not for me. You know, I'm glad, obviously, looking back. And... Um, so basically it got to the point where, you know, the conversation I'm having with my friend, um, it was now centered on Jesus. This is becoming big in my life. All these other things are going on in my life. My mother, blah, 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 the things I've mentioned. Mm -hmm. I'm living in London, uh, but I actually moved back to my hometown as well. Horsham. Yes, in West Sussex on the south coast, uh, not on the south coast, but it, it's uh, about an hour away from the south coast yeah. of England. It's where I grew up, never felt I belonged there. I never felt I belonged anywhere, but anyway, I moved back there, and um, uh, you know I'm doing labouring jobs, but I'm meeting with this guy a lot, okay. But also smoking a bit of dope and and, and other stuff as well. Um, and my friend actually gave his life to Christ. What did that look like for him? Because when people well, say that, like, that's a very religious. Yeah, I know it is. Cliche, it, it, it is. I don't know how else to say it. You, you I know, mean, it's like, don't get me wrong. You know me. Yeah. I happened to me in Africa when I had to surrender my life but to me it was because of pain I didn't care about um, the theology you know what I mean I was whatever works man I'm, I'm in pain I'm cutting myself yeah I'm, yeah I want to die and and then yeah but that's the what thing, happened. yeah although what I will say is that of course there's connotations that puts lots of people off you use these terminologies and they can be stereotypes oh no not one of those born-again Christians again Give me a break, you know, and lots of people react like that. Yeah, yeah, and partly I understand because it has kind of connotations. Oh, the church, yeah. Oh, Christianity, yeah, right. Didn't that? Uh, didn't they help to enslave people in Africa? Part of the, you know, and all that, all those connotations, the Crusades, and all of that. Um, and also in today's world, you know, of uh, you can't. There's lots of things you can't say, or apparently, you know, free speech and all that. You know, so it does have. It can be a bit of a trigger for some people. And some Christians are quite good at being a bit mad, crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At least from what I see, exactly. like, the, extreme, the political extremes, I'm like, man, I don't want anything to do with either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> there's plenty of, plenty of people that, you know, wear the Christian label, you know, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Extreme. But they confirm the stereotypes <laughs> that yeah. people have, yeah. you know, in terms of, I can't relate to you. Yeah. You're, you're religious. You speak language that is not real. 
And yet, let's not say. forget that you know I mean? today's world, the way, I mean, anything that's good about us in mm. the West is because it's based on this principle. So yeah, you don't yeah. have to believe it to yeah. actually say, wow, it's good to yeah. do unto others. Yeah. But anyway, what happened so, in your friend's life? So that, yeah, it's a very good question, George. You know, what does that look like? You know, yeah, that's a very good question. And it's, it's not easy to know how to answer that because it's like immediately you go into stereotype sort of answers. Oh, what did you see? Oh, he became born again and... You know, he's a new creation, and all of that is true. And why okay? did you see? It has truth. He was totally convinced, and he knew, I mean, with all his being, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and that he died on the cross for our sins, and he is the only way to God. So something must have happened in him rather than him thinking about Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, but I was near, actually. Right. And I knew what he was talking about because I also, funnily enough, what he believed now about Jesus was completely, radically different. Because before, it's like, mm, he's looking at the claims of Jesus. Right? Jesus is saying things like, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoa! What about other religions? You, know, you can hear people's, you know, protest and offence Oh, that's so narrow. You hear it all the time. But, you know, if there's one God who created the universe, I guess he has the prerogative to say, this is the way to find me. You know what I mean? Well, what did you see in Andy's What life? did I see in him? He stopped smoking dope, just like that. That's pretty big. He even stopped smoking cigarettes, just like that. Wow. And, uh, you know, because he smoked a lot and... and uh, and also, you know, like I say, he smoked a lot of dough and took acid and things like that as well. Um, it was what he believed about Jesus. That's what changed. And it changed him from within to the point where it so reorientated his, his whole inner being and his way of thinking. It changed his way of thinking. And it starts in the mind. And how did that affect you, observing that? Well, I actually, well, funnily enough, like I said, I agreed with what he was saying because I was very near now to, what can I say, realising that Jesus actually rose from the dead so, and he is the son of God. I was near to that. So actually what he was saying, he'd stepped across the line. It's like, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. There is no other way to God. He is the only way. Stepped across the line and you were near to that. Yeah. What did that look like for you? Because, you know, people here are talking, well, it's like it's just intellectual, well, I stepped across the line, I changed my beliefs. But, like in me, like for me in Africa, I had to surrender. Yeah, exactly. And surrender is very tricky. You yeah. think that it's easy to surrender, it's not. Well, <laughs> I mean, for example, um, the kind of commitment that Jesus actually asks for is pretty, it's radical. In other words, if you don't, if I don't come before your mother and father, brother or sister, your son or daughter, you cannot be my disciple. You take up your cross and you follow me and you die to yourself and you will be hated by the world. You'll be persecuted just like I was. And you will suffer just like I suffered, but you will know the power of my spirit. And I will be with you always and I will never leave you. I will never, ever leave you. I will be with you always. Because some of the things he was saying and claiming to be, 
it's like the only way to God. It was it was make or break. It's like he was closing the deal. He was cornering my friend. <laughs> and it's like being cornered and you're in the corner and you've been cornered and he's, he's closing the deal. It's like you've got nowhere to go. Jesus Christ or nothing else. He is the only way. And he closed the deal with my friend and he was closing the deal with me. Because I, I was already believing that I actually think Jesus is the Son of God. I was struggling with the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I was struggling with that. My friend Andy, like I said, gave me a book that really helped me with that. That was just one thing I was still struggling with. Um, so, in other words, he had changed in the way he thought and what he believed about Jesus. And you liked that. When you saw that, you said... Well, he changed from within. His thinking changed. In other words, he was convinced and he knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be in okay. the New Testament. Okay. okay. It's like, yeah, he had no doubt whatsoever. And, and Is this how you did it then? You just said, you know what? If he can surrender, I can surrender. I want the same. Is it the same? How it happened in you? Yeah, it, it's you. you have to understand, you have to count the cost. Did you? Because... You know, Jesus uses this word called disciple, right? So that's what you see in the New Testament. It's like... Sure, I know, but don't teach us. Tell us what happened I'm in not you. <laughs> I'm not teaching you, George. I'm I just, know you're a teacher. I, I, Can we I, talk about Yeah, this? I know, but I, what I'm saying is, is that this is what Jesus asks of me. He was asking, you become my disciple, and this is what it means. It is a very radical life change. You give your life to me and you surrender. So it's called repentance. And all that means is, is that I've really messed up. And I've lived my life for me in a very self-centered way. I haven't even got God a thought. And it's like, and if there is a God and then he created everything, then he created me and everything. It's like, yeah. So repentance, and although it's like a biblical term and people have a problem with it. It literally means turning around. It literally means just turning around. You're going one way, but it's a U-turn, not a fork in the road. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, yeah. a U it's a radical life change where you now... You give your whole life to him mm. because he gave his whole life for us on, when he died on the cross. So, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's not also, like, if God made you, be, it's not like he's in other words, what he asks of us, he's already done himself. Look, I gave my life to you, I became a human being and, and lived in this broken, fallen world. And, and you know, and I, day, I gave my life for you. So you were considering all these things yeah, in, in yeah. detail. Yeah, was, so, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. So, so it was, you know, closing the deal kind of thing. Like, um, he was really honing in, you know. Okay. And I was, you know, and I, like I say, going back to the drugs binge in um, Amsterdam. And what were you feeling inside? Longing? Well, hope? Well, you see, I was still, I felt such conflict because I was like still wanting to take drugs. But I was thinking, I think Jesus could be the son of God. And yet... I'm on a drugs binge in Amsterdam. What made you think that drugs are in conflict with that? Some people don't I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, I think I was probably getting near to Jesus. It's like, okay, yeah, drugs and Jesus, they don't really go together. So, you know, maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe, and maybe I'm wrong, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but could it yeah. be that you were feeling subconsciously that you were using drugs to suppress some of your emotions, like loneliness and pain, and you're thinking, hold on a minute. If I'm to, to fully give my like everything to God, including my spirit, then my spirit can't be suppressed. I need to feel what I'm supposed to feel rather than suppressing it with drugs. Because, you know, 
you, you either open it to God or you close it down, shut it with the lid of drugs. Is it something like that? Well, maybe, but I, I, I don't know at the time because okay, I was still yeah. a lost, insecure kid at 2021. 20, yeah. But I was getting near to Jesus. Um, now, look, looking back, it's obvious that drugs is a sedative. You're numbing something. Of course. Right? You want to just get out of it. You want to alter your state of consciousness, yeah. you know, out of reality and get high, right? Yeah. But actually, you're numbing something. So, obviously, you're numbing your emotions. Yeah. But you feel great, right? Temporarily, but you're becoming an addict. And it's actually making your reality a lot worse. Yeah. You know, you don't realise it at the time, but it does. Uh, you know, I know that's obvious. So... Um, I don't know about what I was doing. I just was uh, had these this fragmented life, these lots of different things that made up my life in my twenties. We're talking about my twenties uh, and the things that I've mentioned. You know, London. I'm now living back at home. My mother. You know how weird and alienated that is. How surreal that is. Drugs, jobs that I hate. Still feeling lost, uh, you know, don't have any confidence with women and stuff like that. All of that's going on in my life. And, you know, I'm getting really drawn to Jesus. But I'm still taking drugs. I'm in Amsterdam on a drugs binge. Okay. And, um, but I'm getting near now to Jesus. Even though I'm on a drugs binge in Amsterdam. Right? So is this where it happens? No, but just shortly after. Yeah. So, and... Um, this was, when was it? I don't know, 1981 or something? End of 1981? My friend that I meet with and talk about Jesus, he's actually, he stepped across the line. He had given his life to Jesus Christ and was totally convinced and knew that Jesus was the Son of God and he died on the cross and he is the Lord and he's the only way to the Father. Okay, he knew that. And he, he was changing inside. He's, he, he, it's like he had a new nature had a new heart, and that's what actually God promises. He gives us a new heart, right? It's like, whoa, it's pretty radical, right? So I knew, you know, I could see he was changing, but I was near, but I'd gone on this drugs binge, and it was a disaster. Um, came back very abruptly, and... Um, you mean it didn't turn out the way you expected no, it? No, 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 it, it was a disaster, you know, just, um, anyway, came back. And then shortly after, I also then surrendered, as you say, uh, my life to, to, to Jesus Christ. So what happened? You said, if you're out there, there you go, here am I. Something like that? Well, yeah, what happened was, I mean, I, I was <clears throat> crashed at a friend's place, you know, I got stoned the night before, whatever. We'd come back from Amsterdam after a disastrous time. <clears throat> and I stumbled out of my mate's place and I was just walking back to wherever I was living. I looked across the road, I saw this Christian bookshop. And I was just like, it was like a magnet. I was just immediately drawn to it because of where I was at, yeah? Mm. I thought, whoa, it's a Christian bookshop. Walked straight into the bookshop. And um, I was there for 10 hours. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. I was just talking and talking. And my friend was like, really, you know, the guy that in the bookshop who became a friend. And he actually prayed over me. So you just met him? I just met him, yeah. Right. yeah I just met him. I thought, wow, this is interesting, Christian bookshop. I'm, I'm quite interested in Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Right. 
and uh, looked at the books and I was really drawn to it, you know, because I used to go to a Christian bookshop, I forgot to mention that, a Bible bookshop it was called, in my hometown. I was in there all the time, hmm. but like I said, taking drugs and all the rest of that. So anyway, walked into this Christian bookshop, had this conversation that lasted 10 hours, and at the end of that 10 hours, I, I basically, I, I just said, okay, Lord, Lord Jesus, if you are God, if you are the Lord Jesus, if you died on the cross for me and you are the son of God and you died for me, I, 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 I actually think that you are who you say you are. You know, I've got, I'm, I'm still uncertainty, but I, I, you know, came as exactly as I am. Yeah. With all lots of things, with the mess that I, my life was really. And I just, I just gave my life to Jesus. And this guy prayed over me, you know, which is weird. I'd just never had that before. So I, okay, this is a bit weird, you know, whatever. And um, that was it. But I'll tell you what, man, the, few, the next few days and weeks, it's like, whoa, it's like I've been taken from, to another planet. Without I, drugs? Without drugs. Oh, wow. Because I, all of a sudden, I'm reading the Bible all day, every day. It's like, mm, what's going on there? Something really changed. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, yeah, so, um, but here's the thing, George, is that I, it didn't last. And the guy in the bookshop that actually prayed over me, I gave my life to Christ, I was going to his meetings. He had a little a group of people in the back of his bookshop. They were mostly elderly. You know, people in you know in seventies, eighties, whatever, and I'd come from a obviously a radically different life, and but I knew something had changed, and that whoa, I think Jesus is actually alive. He did rise from the dead. It was like he was living inside of me by by a spirit, by the spirit, the Holy Spirit, and it's like I used to meet with my friend Andy again. And he was obviously very pleased because we were both like born again, right? It's like, and you know, my friends that I used to hang out with in the drug circles, they didn't want to know me. They thought I'd lost it and become some religious nutter, you know. <laughs> and, and you do get that, you know. But um, it didn't last. And that's an important point now in my story. Okay, what do you mean it didn't last? <clears throat> well... I, what didn't last? The feeling of, um, what's the word, elation, the feeling of, um, of... Well, what happened was, and I'm kind of like moving into a different chapter now, in a sense, in my 20s, late, mid to late 20s. And um, what happened was, I just felt so alienated in this group of people. I was a fish out of water. You mean the druggy friends? No, no, no. Um, Yes, I felt alienated from them because I'd like met with Jesus, who, who, who like I realised was who exactly who he said he was, right? And it's like I know that I met with this person, who is alive, right? Did you have like a vision or something? No, 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 no. I just I, it's what he said in the Bible. This is what will happen if you give a life to me. Yeah, I'll give. But a, you felt something. I'll something give you a changed. new. I'll give you a new heart, and I'll put my spirit in you. Yeah, and I'll become your father. You'll become my son. Okay. Now, the father thing you mentioned just now, yeah. that becomes 
relevant now. That takes a long time to kick in, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Because it does. of our father issues. Absolutely. Because I didn't have a father. But okay? no, sorry for asking. Uh, who did you not fit in with? I didn't fit in anywhere. Because I didn't fit in with the, the guys I used to take drugs with anymore. Because I now had given my life to Jesus. But I didn't, I didn't fit in to church people either. So you started going to church? Well, I started going to this fellowship group, right? But they were mostly elderly. That's fine, you know, but that, that just happened to be what it was. But I, I couldn't relate. So, like, obviously, I, 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 and I actually started feeling like, you know what? I don't actually relate to these people. And I, I, I was having the same feeling, George. I didn't fit in with my mama, my mother, my mama, my mother, her little family unit, married with the kids, go and see her every now and again in Surrey. I don't really fit in here. Which is understandable. Yeah. You know, given, yeah. yeah. Didn't really fit in around Christians either, funnily enough. I believe the same thing as you, but I there's a real disconnect somewhere. And I wasn't really connecting with my drug friends either because like they thought I, would, I was a nutter. And they okay. you know, I, I was like lost it. So and I, but I had my friend Andy and we, we you know we used to meet. So yeah. the lack of roots showed up again. Yeah, this is it, you see. So this is where my childhood in the large foster home and the chaos and the insecurity and everything about my teenage years, lack of identity and all the rest of it, really sort of came to the, to the surface. And I, I just started feeling alienated. I thought, I don't fit in here. I know Jesus is the Son of God. But I don't really belong here. I don't really feel like I fit here. And I don't feel comfortable here. So basically, I, I went back to my drug friends. But I, do you know what, looking back, it's like, and they welcome me back. Welcome home, welcome back. I remember them saying, welcome back. So they forgave you that you've been religious? Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> welcome back, you've become normal again. When they couldn't have been further from the truth, actually. But... I went back, but you know what? It's only now, it's only much later actually, George, when I realised what was going on. And it was about attachment, belonging, yes. identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? Because it's like, okay, didn't have the family, tried the football crowd, football culture, started changing, become a bit of a hippie, drug scene, become a Christian. But then I don't feel like I fit anywhere. Where do I belong? Don't fit in with my mum and her little family thing. I don't really fit in anywhere. And it was really painful, actually. Mm. And so I went back to my drug friends. And that lasted a few years. And I, it became a lifestyle. Okay, very interesting. Sorry to interrupt. Now, very interesting, Nigel. And you know about this. Um, it just I'm fascinated by how it shows up, the, the lack of root. It shows up even with people who are like really high up like uh, on the straight and narrow, so to speak. I mean, I know many church people who... Mm struggle with relationships in their 50s and 60s, yeah. but they haven't revisited the old stories. They haven't actually gained that attachment. You know, Morgan Snyder in the Become Good Soul um, podcast and blog, he talks yeah. about um, yeah. attachment. Yes. And he talks about what happens when there's no attachment, when there has not been no attachment in childhood. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've worked with quite a few people, including myself, um, yeah. Yeah. where I had to revisit and, and reattach to... I kind of, without getting weird, I don't know how to say it, but 
to aspects of my parents that are still within me that I haven't been able to be introduced because of the lack of knowledge at the time, I guess. Um, and then that makes me easy to connect with people today. And I find that fascinating how people who have not had good attachment history, they think that even that by adopting new religion, spirituality, they think that they can just move on. You can't. It's still in you. You need to revisit that. Yeah. But of course, when you have an awareness of God, this should lead you there. So how did you live with the awareness of God and taking drugs? Like how did you... How'd that work out? Oh man, that's a good question. Very good question because I'd be out of my head on acid, LSD, wow. tripping out of my head or magic mushrooms or whatever. But I knew that Jesus was the Son of God. I, I've got a really painful memory of what they call a bad trip. Okay. Bad acid trip, okay? LSD, because it's hallucinogenic. Had a real, what they call, what hippies call a bummer. Okay. A bum trip, right? I had a major bum trip, man, uh, at this festival and dropped some acid, as they say. And I had a really bad trip, really nightmare of, ex of, an, of an experience. Okay, describe it quickly, because I, I really haven't never tried that. What I was seeing, you know, I was talking to people who were sitting in the air, I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm talking to them and they're sitting cross-legged in the air in the sky and I'm, their faces are distorting in front of me and... It was really kind of out there. Did you know those people? No, 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 I didn't know those people. I was just at a festival. With no, them. I mean, the people who you received whose face were distorted, did you address them as someone? Were they someone you knew? Yes. Um, <clears throat> in fact, uh, yeah, I remember I, I was looking up at the sky and I was this guy was sitting in midair and I was talking to him. Well, he was one of the guys that had dropped acid with me. Okay. And yet I'm talking to him, he's sitting in the air, and I'm, I'm sort of talking to him, you know, really weird, and but scary. But you know what, I, I actually got really scared, I freaked out, because what I was seeing was freaking me out. People's faces just melting in front of me when I'm talking to them. Wow. Right, really scary stuff. And I'm, I'm actually crying out to Jesus. And I remember talking to my mate, who also was a backslidden Christian actually, at the time, in his teenage years, he was a Christian, but he's like a major hippie guy now. But he actually, you know, I'm kind of moving in his circles now. But he knows who Jesus is, but he's like lived in denial for a long time. Became a major hippie, really long hair, all the rest of it. And I, you know, I had a big bushy beard and a long hair and all the rest of it. And I was a kind of a hippie at this time. But you know, the acid trip, the drugs, it was really scary. And I remember talking to, him, to, to, to this guy and we sort of saying, yeah, Jesus and the love of Jesus. We're talking about the love of Jesus because we're trying, I'm trying to think, my name is Nigel. I know my name is Nigel. I am so like checked out of reality. I didn't even know my name. Somebody's having to tell me who I am. Yeah, your name is Nigel. Yeah, yeah okay, that sounds familiar. Yeah, your name's wow. Nigel. Yeah, do you remember Nigel Mohammed? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Okay, yeah, yeah, right, okay, I'll hold on to that. I was really out there, man. And it was scary stuff. But do you know what the most scary thing was? I thought I was like that for the rest of my life. I thought that was it. Wow. I thought I was insane. I thought I was losing my mind. So you were aware of you losing your mind? That's what I believed I was losing my mind. And I believed that that was it for the rest of my life. I'm telling you, man, that was the scariest experience. Communist prison when I was 19, getting beaten up, right? big time by the police that was a walk in the park man 
compared with believing that I have lost my mind and I'm hallucinating and I'm thinking that and believing this is for the rest of my life. I can't even tell you how scary that was. Lots of people have had bad trips. It's very, you know, it happens, but yeah. So, you know, obviously it didn't last and I came round and all the rest of it. But, but you know what? I still didn't learn from it. I still carried on dropping acid and magic mushrooms and hallucinogenics and snorting speed and all the rest of it. Now I understand So the I got speed more thing. and more yeah, away but... from Jesus and yet I knew, I mean, I'd be out of my head on mushrooms, magic mushrooms, which is hallucinogenic like LSD, and I'd be talking to people about Jesus. Yeah. So I was very lost again. I was still very lost. Yeah. But I didn't know where I fitted in, George. Is this Identity. why you took acid? Because I understand the, well, the speed and the coke. Because I used to take coke. But that's because it made me open to the world and talking and all that, you know. No, no. But acid and like wanting to see things. Did you actually want to go into the spirit realm or just to well, escape? Well, I, I just, I didn't know at the time. I, I think at the time, to be honest with you, it was about, like I said, about like belonging to something. Because even when I knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Sure, of course. But right? why not just lines of Coke or, you know, speak? Because yeah, that's what I, mean, I did. Yeah, no, I snorted lines of Coke. Mm. Oh, you mean so anything, just to, to click anything. in with those people? Anything. All right. But I'd never, I never mainlined. I never injected. Thank God for that. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I could All right, have, sorry to interrupt. I, I just wanted to a bit of clarity no, about no, that. No, 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 that's okay. I mean, I could have done. I, you know, I... I was moving in those circles, believe me, who were injecting speed and heroin into their veins in wow. front of their kids for crying out loud. Really? I, you know, I started getting that low in those circles and wow. yet knowing that Jesus Christ was the eternal son of the living God and that he died on that cross for me. But I was lost because I never fitted in anywhere and I never fitted into church, man. Never have done. But I understand why. Because you're going into another culture. But yeah. I haven't lived in that culture, mm. right? And I don't speak their language. I kind of do, but I don't, if you see what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I believe that as well, but it's like, I can't relate to you, mm. you know? And so in terms of manhood, fatherhood, God is a father. Well, I couldn't relate to God as a father. This is where that father wound thing yeah. you mentioned. Okay. And I, I couldn't relate to God as father, and it was painful. I thought... God is my father. I, I knew Jesus uh, was God, you know, and Jesus was Lord. Believed in the Trinity, you know, worked that one out. Well, it worked it out. I mean, I believed it, you know. But it's like I never had a connection with, with the Father, with God as Father, which it, which I, I, I believe actually is probably quite common because we all have a father wound. I believe every human has that, honestly. I, I, I believe because if God is a father, which I believe he is, he's totally our father, you know, of course, I'm, I know that he is our father. But if God is a father, then fathers are really important, right? In shaping the identity of a child. Yet no father is perfect. In, including daughters. Yeah. Right? Tell including daughters. So, uh, you know, a woman can have a father wound. Tell me about it. Ask my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well done for being that honest, George. But anyway. Um, so, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, drug scene, I, I, I went away from Jesus, I'm in the drug scene now, that was like another family. It was like a substitute family. So I ended up living in houses with other people that were smoking dope, even really? drug dealers, you know. Really? Oh yeah, they became friends. It's like some of my best friends were drug dealers, who I lived with in the same house. Where was that, in London? 
No, 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 that was in my hometown. Oh, yeah, sorry. Your uh, yeah, yeah. That was in my hometown. My friend Andy, by the way, had moved out. He'd gone to university. He, got, you know, was off the scene. Um, but, you know, living in a hippie house, it's like drugs were always available because it's like, there's a couple of dealers that are my friends. It's like, it's always there, right? What about the police? Did the police visit often? Um, well, yeah, what, to, what, to indulge as well? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think maybe a couple of times we had a, bit, a couple of run-ins, whatever, but... Um, you yeah. never got the major, like, arrest or a trial because of that involvement with those dealers? Funnily enough, it never did. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, you know, And how long did maybe... it last, then, that uh, new family of yours? Well, I mean, it was a few years that um, I was kind of a bit of a hippie, really. And, you know, I even looked like a hippie, you know, stereotype hippie. I, you know, I grew my hair long, I grew a big bushy beard and, um, you know, just the clothes I wore, even the way I talked. You know what it's like, it's a subculture. Yes. It forms your identity. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yet deep inside, George, I was still a lost, frightened, insecure little boy uh, that knew that Jesus was the Son of God and probably believed that I really messed up and I've blown it with him because it's like yeah I, I ain't following Jesus anymore you know but you know I um I, I did I did come out of that lifestyle and I did then begin to follow Jesus again and I've never looked back actually but I mean yeah. when you say come out was it gradual or did thing happen did something happen yeah again a very good question um, I, um, it was, it was a bit of both actually, because I realized I was doing myself harm. I was like, when we, when I lived in this house with a couple of drug dealers and, and other people, and we were all like just dope heads really, but also other drugs as well. We just like, we till six in the morning, we'd be taking drugs, you know, and then sleep in till three in the afternoon or whatever, and then just repeat it. It was just. Oh, it was so destructive. Um, but I, what happened was, that's it, I got in trouble with the police again, which I hadn't been for a while, actually. But I, I, I did something, I broke the law, I think. Uh, and I, I, I was on probation or something. And I had to do something called community service, yeah. right? Yeah. Where you do something for the community, right? Where you're, it's like paying a fine, yeah? And I did that. But what happened was, my friend Andy that I told you about, he was in university in, a, in Lancashire, in the north of England. And he had a house. And I remember him contacting me. He said, look, I've got a house, right? We've got a room and a house. And um, the guy that I did acid with, that I mentioned, that was a Christian in his previous life, he was also wanting to get back with Jesus. And we had this opportunity to move up to Lancashire, move into this house with my friend Andy that I told you about, yeah. um, and actually try and get our act together. Okay, that's, that's <laughs> we, good. We've got, right? So that's what I did. So I did the community service in Lancashire, in this town in Lancashire, living in the house with my friend Andy, this other guy that I did the acid trip with, who's now wanting to also get his life together with Jesus and um, this other guy. And we're all kind of ex-hippies, really, you know, 
all got long hair, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but wanting now to kind of like, yeah, we need to get our life, we need to get our life together. We need to be serious now about Jesus. And he was actually already serious. Um, he didn't, he didn't go back into drugs. But, you know, so there we are, we're living there. And, and, I, and I got back with God. I got back with, I, I you know, I changed. I, I repented, as we say, like I did earlier, previously. I gave my life to Jesus. I, re I had to repent again. And actually, God, I've really screwed up here. I've messed up big time. I've turned against you. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, true repentance, which is just changing your mind. Yeah, it's like he doesn't know. Yeah, it's just like... <laughs> this is, oh, really? It's, yeah, it's a U-turn. You know, it's like you yeah, come around. Yeah. And again, I did that again. Yeah, what people don't know is End like... End of my 20s. When you do things like that, that harm mm. your spirit, um, you just, there's no clarity of spirit. And yeah. So when people say, you know, I'm just standing for the sake of people, at least my understanding very often is like something numbs you and then yeah. you, it's not like God has left you, but you, you, you can't, you're not aware of God anymore. Yeah. And then when you say, oh, look what I've done and you remove that numbing thing, you've got the clarity of spirit now to pursue spiritual goals. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, George. Um, there were some radical things that happened very, very shortly. Okay. Uh, which I will talk about. But um, I'm going into my thirties now, and I'm. There were two. There was an event. There were. There's a couple of things that when I repented, um, I was going to a local church. Hated it. Didn't feel I fitted in. Fish out of water. I went overseas, on, a, on what they call a mission trip. Okay. To uh, Southeast Asia. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Because it was that sense of adventure again. Remember when I hitchhiked around Europe? Yeah. So this happened after you came back from uh, Lancashire? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So, um, and, um, yeah. Was attending a local church. Couldn't wait to get away. Got accepted with this missionary organisation. Was in Southeast Asia. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I met these two American guys who I, again, they were two kind of ex-hippie guys. And I got on so great with them. But they'd become, I felt like I'd known them my whole life. We just connected that. And I really wanted to stay with this mission organisation, but it didn't happen. And then something really radical started to happen. There were two things. In the next two years, something really extreme began, uh, happened in my life. And that is, when I came back from Southeast Asia, which I loved, and I experienced the first time in my life a sense of family. Okay, okay. Right? With those missionaries. Yeah. Right. Because I lived in community with them. Hmm. Right? And I loved So what was that like? Well, it was, it was bittersweet because it's, it, was, it was fantastic. Because I was getting a taste of something that I'd never had in my life up to that point, ever. No sense of family, no belonging, who am I kind of thing, what am I good at? But now I'm going all out for Jesus, okay? And I'm on the mission field in Southeast Asia. I even work with the triads in Hong Kong. Wow. And, um, <laughs> you know, and with a, a woman called Jackie Pullinger, who has worked with triads for I've heard about it, yeah. 30 or 40 years or more. So I, I, I spent some time there, not long, but, you know. Um, and I, I met these two American guys, got on really well with them, really spoke their language, not just because we're hippies, but also because of our struggles in life, you know, how we felt 
Like we didn't fit anywhere. You know, they really spoke our language. And um, I came back and I went into crisis. Hmm. Something happened. And what I, what I realised much later, George, was that it was like just when I was five and I was yanked away from my foster home by this strange woman and taken in a boat across the other side of the world to Trinidad, which profoundly traumatised me and, and stayed with me for years. It was like another severing of attachment. Mm -hmm. okay, I'm in my late 20s. I'm attaching to people living in community. It feels like family. It's like, this feels great. Now, there were real challenges, which didn't feel so great. Okay. But family challenges. But family challenges. And it's like, okay, this is totally new to me. And, and it's like, okay, I don't know if I can act this, but I love it as well. Mm -hmm. Kind of bittersweet. But I thought, I want this. I want this. Because it's like, with this mission organisation, I can travel the world as well. And I can really make a difference to people's lives. I can even learn skills and serve within this missionary organisation, right? And I really wanted to stay. I actually felt like I'd found my place. Wow. I thought, I want to stay with this for the rest of my life. And it didn't happen. It only lasted for a very short time. Hmm. And I went into crisis because when I came back, and I remember standing on a place called Hong Kong Island and looking out and saying, God, I'll go anywhere in the world apart from Horsham. Anywhere apart from my hometown. You know where I ended up, right? <laughs> God has his ways, doesn't he? Yeah, um, but that's profound. Though. Let me just comment on this. Yeah. Because it's absolutely profound. Now, the thing that we most desire is like God is good that he doesn't give it to us because then we're going to attach to that. And, and we desire it because of the lack, the inner lack, you see? Because if you attach to something outside of yourself, I don't know, I don't care how great a church or organization, then your well-being will depend on that. As long as that goes well, you'll be well. You see what I mean? This is a really crucial point you just made there, George. Yeah. Um, there's a researcher called Brené Brown, yeah, yeah, yeah. an American kind of uh, sociologist, I think, uh, and she does very interesting research on belonging, mm -hmm. identity, connection, things like that. And I'm just reading her book at the moment, Brave in the Wilderness. And she says in that book, belonging to ourselves means being called to stand alone, to brave the wilderness ah, of uncertainty, vulnerability and criticism. But in the world that we live in today, so in other words, belonging comes from inside, your authentic self. When the attachment wound is healed enough, you start to connect with your authentic self, who you really are meant to be, mm. which is born out of profound pain and suffering actually but when you come out of that and it crystallizes the essence of who you are it starts to crystallize you start to get glimpses of it when you get glimpses of it you hold on to it for dear life because like yeah this is who i am this is what the grace of god is actually shaping me into and you belong anywhere and it's redemption and you belong anywhere yeah and and it's like but in a world that feels like a political and ideological combat zone, it is incredibly tough. Because there's lots of things you can't say today because they shut you down, right? So now, Brené Brown was very influenced by a black poetess called Maya Angelou. Oh, yeah. And she, she has this quote in her book, and she says, you're only free, this is Maya Angelou, she says, you are only free when you realise you belong no place and every place and no place at all. 
The price is high, but the reward is great. Mm. And she struggled with that for many years, but then she got it. Belonging comes from inside when you connect with who you really are, especially out of a long journey of of not belonging, Mm. no connection, attachment wounds, and the pain of all of that identity confusion and, and facing fa- that inner story and facing that which goes into your inner child actually yeah and most people don't want to face that for a good reason in the west we're not actually taught or facilitated to do that they don't want to go there no and i hate how there's a verdict on you because this is let's say yeah. you're now in your 50s 60s you know let's say you say well that's been the story all my life and yeah. most people look at you and say well that's it I mean, if I haven't changed so far, so that's going to be it. But it's not true. Yeah. And I just keep sort of hammering that down because in my, um, my first book, The Father Wound, I recently, I was just telling you about this off, 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 uh, off air, I felt compelled to add this chapter at the back, at the end of it, called Honor Thy Father for Your Own Sake. Right, right. Because a guy, very close man to me, very close to me, um, not that long ago, something happened to him in terms of... Um, healing that attachment that he never had. He never had that. Yeah. His father was completely worse than an alien because yeah. an alien, at least you're curious about. Yeah. But he was something that he never wanted any part of for a good reason. And yet, when recently his own inner child, I guess you can say, you know, the younger aspect of him was um, allowed to turn back to the deposit of his father within him. Yeah. Something happened to this guy. Something external happened. And so that's yeah. what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter um, what your story has been. Um, things can change. And that's why we're talking about these things. We're not just bringing up, oh, well, some people never belong. This is a lie. Inner deep change is possible. So, yeah, rant over from my side. Yeah, no, no, that's okay. I, I'm, but, you know, though I'm jumping the gun a little bit about belonging, but belonging that I realized, kind of looking back in retrospect, reflecting on my story, but I'm in my late 20s. I've come back from Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, with this mission organisation. And although talking about belonging there was reflecting in retrospect a little bit, looking back on my story, but it's it, it's the main theme of all of our story, actually. Belonging, you know, identity and what have you. And another theme, and that is our calling, you know, that comes out of it. But... You, you have to understand that, you know, when you understand that vulnerability and courage are what, are what is required to stand alone, you, you, you understand that. But, you know, not till probably later when you actually go into all of your stuff, start letting go of it because it's toxic, it's pain, it's, it's killing you. You know, it's like it's created a false self. Anyway, late 20s. I'm actually come back from Southeast Asia. I went into crisis and I, I, I didn't know what was going on. A pain started to kick in within me wow. and it was unbearable for about six months. I mean, every day, wow. practically every day. Wow. It was a pain inside that I, it was unbearable and I was, it was scary because it was on a level of like the bad acid trip prison in Yugoslavia. That pain was so scary it was consuming me. It was like this mega wave in the ocean that was coming to swallow me up. It's like a sudden, uh, suddenly I just like, it was like I was in the sea and I saw this huge mega wave just appear out of nowhere. And that pain, and that wave represented my deepest pain. Sorrow? It was, well, it was about not belonging and 
not finding my place, but it was also about father wounds, orphan, mm -hmm. the orphan wounds, because I was basically orphaned at birth, yeah. really. Just after I was born, I was orphaned at birth. So it was it was very much fundamentally about an orphan spirit, an orphan wound. And that was kind of fundamentally it was about. But everything else comes out of that orphan wound. You don't belong anywhere. Identity confusion, constant moving, rootlessness. What, what am I supposed to do? Where's my place? All of that is comes out of the orphan wound. I, I believe it, it did with me anyway. So a pain started to kick in. I experienced the first thing that I think is family for the first time in my life. And now it's been cut off again. Hmm. Just like it was when I was five, yanked from the foster home. So it's not new pain, it's the old pain being triggered. Well, I, I think it is, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I, I was in so much pain, George, for about six months. I, I was just such a mess. I don't know how I... I, I what did you do for six months? How did you... Well, I, I, I actually had a, a job in a crazy place. Um, in an unemployment place, and I was on the reception on the front line, dealing with people that were just sleeping on the street, demanding money, really, wow. you know, marginalised people, all kinds of, you know, in Brighton, right? And, um, and I'm in a place where I'm feeling suicidal, I'm feeling despair, I'm feeling in so much pain, I'm breaking down on the street, wow. crying like a child in a war zone, on the way to work, wow. and having to hold it together, right? And just suddenly, out of nowhere, randomly, I, I just break down and I weep uncontrollably anywhere. And it's like, I feel like I'm coming apart. Really scary, man. And uh, anyway, the long and short of it is that I tried taking my own life. And, you know, I, I did attempt suicide. And I, I was in so much pain, I couldn't bear it anymore. Because it was scary, man. And... Um, I, 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 you know, it was just agony beyond description. And um, I just did it so casually one day, so casual. And I, I was uh, sharing a flat with a guy who went to the church that I attended before I went to Southeast Asia. And I was living with this guy. And um, I just casually swallowed loads of pills one day, got on a train, went up to London. And I knew that by the time I got to the end of the train, I could be dead. And they'd just think I was drunk or whatever, or asleep. And people would just ignore me. But I didn't care. Now, obviously, I, did, I didn't go through with it. I, I, I took the pills. I, I attempted suicide because this pain was just, it was too, it was lacerating. It was, it was just like, I, like razors were cutting my inner being to shreds. You know, it was like I was hemorrhaging inside blood you know it was, it was so painful and I it you know what and I didn't even know what it was about hmm. and you know you could hardly speak that kind of pain in, in a church culture oh you didn't have anyone to no I had no one think with those no, categories. No, no, no one to talk to no one to process that's so sad that's sad yeah so no one to process it through with and so I'm on my own really in it and I don't know what's going on so anyway, I attempted suicide. Obviously, I got off the train. Went Why? Because well, you, you said that. Well, because I'm getting more and more. I'm on the train and I'm getting drowsier and drowsier. Okay. And I have swallowed the pills, man. And I've swallowed enough to switch the lights out. You hear what wow. I'm saying? Wow. And it's like, this is the real deal, man. I've actually done it. And I'm going to be dead soon. Part of me doesn't really care. 
because I can't take this pain anymore. It opened up something really primal and deep in me, man. Coming back from Southeast Asia, family, community for the first time, adventure, identity, belonging. Yes, I could do this for the rest of my life. Everything was all wrapped up in that situation, the potential of it, and it's taken away again. And it opened up this huge, profound chasm of pain in me that was like this mega wave that was threatening to swallow me up where I just disappeared into oblivion. And I wanted to disappear at this point. So I'm on the train and I'm getting drowsier and drowsier. And I, I just, I thinking, okay, I have a choice. And I'm still enough, I'm able to think I have a choice. I can get off at the next stop and go into the nearest hospital and get a stomach pump. Or I can go ahead with it and stay on the train. Because it was a fast train and I would have gone to London and I would have been like in a real desperate state. You know, maybe having got on the train, literally just roaming around, just sedated. I'm going to die somewhere on the street, somewhere, whatever. Got off the train at Crawley Station, went into the hospital, had my stomach pumped out. That's the long and short of it. What made you take that, that decision? Well, I guess I wanted to live. Now, I, I know people talk about, oh, it's about attention, all the rest of it. No, it's about pain. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, I wanted to live enough. So I, I guess I didn't want to die enough to go ahead with it. Mm. But something really deep is going on. Mm. Something profound is going on inside of me that was triggered or opened up by going to Southeast Asia and finding something that I've never had it before in my life. And yet it was taken away from me. It was just, again, severed again. Five years old, being cut off from the foster home. Yeah. A boat being abducted, being kidnapped by this stranger across the other side of the world. Huge trauma. Screaming for six weeks, sent me back on my own, come back. It's like, almost like that again. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, um, had my stomach pumped out and uh, I was still suicidal when I got back for a few months. Got a job labouring on a building site just for a change. And I was suicidal on the building site. I was still in a suicidal state. Nobody knew about it. And, um, because I can't speak that kind of pain in this church culture, but it's all nice and praise the Lord and it just seems so total false and superficial and religious. And it's like, no, I can't actually tell you about this, can I? Um, so anyway, um, uh, that's it. Yeah, I'm working on the building site. Didn't last. I was in such a desperate state. I just walked off the building site, blah, blah, blah. And then what happened was I applied back to the missionary organisation. I thought, I want to go back. That's where I belong. I want to go back. I'm waiting for the application form. This is about six months after I've tried taking my own life, okay? So, and I'm still suicidal. And I'm waiting to hear the, from the application and I pass my driving test, okay? Fourth attempt. Pass my driving test. A month later, after passing my driving test, I get my first driving job. And it's delivering pizzas. And I thought, I'll take this driving job while I'm waiting here for my application to the mission organisation. You know, and I, it, was, it was a ship that travelled all around the world. And it would have been an adventure. It would have been so much. I had friends on that ship that I was with. 
mm. in Southeast Asia and also in, you know, with the mission organisation in England before I went. And they really wanted me to join them because I'd really bonded with them, mm -hmm. you know. And it would have been, oh, it was a dream. But instead of a dream, what happened was I was waiting to hear from the application. I took the job with a pizza delivery driving, first day of the job. First day of the job, waiting for this application, on the brink of a dream. I do my last delivery of the first day of the job. I go around a bend. The car crashes. The van crashes. Smash into a tree, the tire blew out. And I broke both my legs. Okay, so the fact that now you have the disability <coughs> is because of that, is it? Yeah. Wow. I broke both my legs. My nerves were damaged. I became permanently dis disabled. Mm. And painfully permanently disabled. Um, mm. And uh, it took me 18 months to walk again. So I didn't go on the mission ship. Wow. Instead of a dream, I was a nightmare. I had a nightmare. I was in a wheelchair. Wow. It took me 18 months to walk. All right. Why don't you catch your breath and I want to ask you a question. Yeah. Have a drink. Yeah. yeah. Because I just ca I can't... Got a bit of a... Fogging me throat, as they say. That's okay. I can't wait to ask this, and I don't know what you think of this. I'm pretty sure, I think I do know. But you know how there are spiritual laws and principles, and uh, I just can't help but think, you know, <clears throat> you, you've just, you've, um, after coming back, because of your childhood pain being reopened, you opted for something, didn't you? You opted for death. Even though you changed your mind, you actually opted for it, didn't you? You, you said, you know what, I'm, I would rather go there than stay here yeah. and, and hope that this will be healed. Mm -hmm. So you opened the door, I think, spiritually speaking. Yeah. <clears throat> Am I going to be crazy enough if I, I, if I wonder if something walked in through that door and uh, then try to take your life? Just because there, I mean, I believe that there, there are some people who walk about... Uh, and only bad things happen to them. And some people always seem to attract good things. And there's some families in which accidents and trauma, unlike uh, in my family, there's quite a few things. <laughs> um, they just run in families. And some people are more prone to accidents. Some people are more prone to rejection. You know, but because of what doors, spiritually, <clears throat> emotionally, yeah. been opened in their history. So do you think this wild, maybe this is just a wild thing, but do you think that because you opened the door to death, Mm. Say, no, come in, take me, yeah. then something like that happened? Maybe, maybe not. And I'm not, I'm not giving you guys any, anything, oh, this happened to you because of that. I'm just wondering about Nigel's life. I'm not, this is not a recipe. This is not what happened. We just, I, I'm curious. I'm curious. I think about my own life and, and I've seen patterns. Mm. I've seen crazy patterns. So um, I'm sure I'll be excused in asking that, that question. Do you think there was a relation? <clears throat> what, like a generational thing? No. That the fact that you open the door for death deliberately saying, I want death to come in, yeah. then you nearly died, and you, your body is still paying the price for you nearly dying, being hit by a car. Yeah. You could have died easily. Yeah, I, that's an interesting it's point. It's a huge accident, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting point, actually. Um, and that's actually, that's, that's, very, that's a very complex, penetrating yeah. question, because if I'd opened the door six months before, <clears throat> It's like I gave some spiritual principle, if you like, permission to take my life. Mm. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't do it. I'm still, I'm still alive, but I'm still suicidal. And you didn't die either. But death comes for me. By the accident, nearly. Yeah, death comes for me nearly. Yeah, that's interesting. interesting. 
Um, I, I think there is, I do believe there is some spiritual principles uh, connected with that, and I do agree with that. Yes. Blessing is curses. And I, I later had to repent of like making a covenant with death. There you go. Yeah, yeah. so there I've done that. Um, and yes, I, I do agree with you because it, there are more complex principles going on uh, because you, you are essentially making an agreement with death and giving permission to something to take you out because you, you yeah. want to die. And even though you don't go ahead with it, something is kicked in at a deep level. And if there's a spiritual realm, which we believe there is, and we know there is, okay, then there's also the evil side, the dark side, which is all about lies and wanting to steal, kill and destroy who you really are, mm. uh, who God created us to be and redeemed us to be. That's what's wanted to be stolen and killed and destroyed. So, yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. Mm. Um, you know, obviously, I don't know at the time, you know. No. Uh, and and so, sorry, yeah, what happened? Yeah, well... Um, I just wanted to... Yeah, just well, little uh, door, just yeah, yeah, well, the tyre blew out. I was sent out in an illegal vehicle wow. by the employer. First day of the job and the first time I drove legally. Wow, look at this. And this is what happened. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> it's like man what's this about this is and six months ago i'm on the brink of a dream going on a missionary ship around the world and now i'm not only have attempted suicide and now i'm permanently disabled and this is just in the space of six months wow right so it was a radical year 1988 um and so i uh it took them three hours to cut me out and um 18 months to walk again and uh, I have lots of metal in my legs and the nerves in my left leg are damaged. So I have nerve spasms and I have had for 34 years now. And I've lived with chronic pain for 34 years as a result of that accident. So there's lots of things I can't do physically, but actually God was taking me also a lot deeper. <laughs> and I- Where well, usually you would not have gone again. <laughs> well, I, I, I kind of, it's like I was driven into a wilderness mm. for, for, many years actually but I, I went really deep then with God because he was then dealing with a lot of brokenness in my life by through disability through pain and you know I'd had enough pain or, you know emotionally in a way and now I've got physical pain right? wow. and the two together are kind of you know pretty desperate <clears throat> but the amazing thing is George is that six months before I was suicidal tried taking my own life it's like I was on the brink of a dream, didn't happen. Six months after attempting suicide, I have this accident that leaves me in a wheelchair and I'm permanently painfully disabled for the rest of my life. Which means I can't do lots of things, mm. right? And my life changes at the young age of 29, right? And I still don't have a home. Because I didn't have a home to go to really when I left hospital in a wheelchair. I was homeless in a wheelchair, mate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So where did you live? How can you be homeless? Well, well, I initially what I'm saying is I didn't have anywhere to live. I don't know where I'm going. I'm in a wheelchair. I can't get in certain people's houses with steps. I didn't think about maybe going back to the foster home where I grew up because they got lot big steps. For some reason it didn't register. I couldn't go into the house. I'm in a wheelchair. A couple of friends uh, who I thought were friends from the church that I used to go to before I went to Southeast Asia, 
they put me up in his and her father's bungalow. Brother and sister, they put me up in their father's bungalow. It was a nightmare. Uh, they wounded me deeply, all of them. It was a really painful experience. You know, I can go into that, but I'm kind of trying to summarise. Okay, um, yeah. You know, and I, um, I, I got out of the wheelchair, 18 months. I'm having occupational therapy, physiotherapy, hydrotherapy. Um, but I'm not getting any counselling. I'm not getting any support about what's going on at another level, emotionally, spiritually, or whatever. And, um, you know, I eventually get onto, work, on, onto crutches and I learn to walk again and what have you. And um, I, uh, I basically got educated again. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no qualifications anyway, but now I've got no qualifications and I'm, I'm disabled. And I'm, I live with chronic pain. So I had a leg caliper for Goodness, a year or so. Crutches for over a year. Um, yeah, all of that. And, um, you know, so like the foundation, there was no foundation, as I said, from childhood, right? It's like the foundation's even more now dismantled because I've got permanent painful disability and I have still got no home, really. I did go back to the foster home. I rehabilitated, convalesced there. Used to go to OT, occupational therapy, all the rest of it. Long journey, 18 months, two years. What am I gonna do? I'm on crutches, I'm driving again, okay? And um, I went to college and I, I got educated again. Where? At a college and- um, In London? No, 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 in Sussex, in Crawley. Okay. And. Um, I then did this course, it's called an access course, access to higher education for mature students. And I loved it. Hmm. I absolutely loved learning. Hmm. And um, I stayed with it and I thought, I really want to go with this actually. Anyway. What did you study? It was the beginning of a, um, a long journey of education, but I was fighting drug addiction to painkillers. Wow. As so well. now you got addicted to the painkillers. Yes, yeah. and I'm fighting that as well now. Wow. So what subject did you study? It took me 15 years, man. Wow. To get wow. a degree. Wow. And I became a teacher eventually. But it was a long 15-year journey. So mm. during my 30s, um, it is, is that somebody at the door, George? Must be the mailman, ignore him. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Care. I'll just wave at him. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, so, in my 30s, I, I'm really loving education, but I'm fighting drug addiction. I'm still moving places. Oh, Why did you study? I studied, I, I did a, like a humanities course. Why? History. Bit of sociology, wow. bit of psychology, bit of you know things like that, wow. and I really loved it actually. That's fascinating. So for someone who I mean, you've only like worked jobs, like building sites, things like that. You never had any education, but you went for the big, for the. Well, I had to do something. It's deep. like I can't work on building sites anymore. Wow. I didn't want to anyway. Did you want to be a teacher then? No, no, not. You just wanted to learn. Well, I did eventually, but I. Wow. But basically, I went back to college. I'm still on crutches. I'm driving to college on crutches. I'm around 16-year-old girls giggling 
and I'm 30 years of, old, of age and it's not easy. <laughs> right? But it's like I had to work out what am I going to do? Obviously, I didn't go on the missionary ship, right? So it's like rock bottom, man. I'm having to get back up again. And you studied all those deep... Um, well, I studied. I did this course for a couple of years. But I'm fighting drug addiction. I'm getting dependent on painkillers, really strong painkillers. Wow. Pethidine, what they give to women in labour. Wow. I get addicted to pethidine, man. And, um, and all kinds of painkillers. I get addicted to them. You know, like a history of illicit drugs, right? It's like, <laughs> didn't want to take drugs anymore. I was like, okay, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so during my 30s, I, I'm, you know, again, these, this experience now is shaping me. You know, I'm, I'm going in, I'm in a wilderness in a sense, but I'm getting educated and I'm really enjoying education. Long journey. I'm constantly moving still. Different places, wow. even different towns. And, you know, uh, but I'm really learning. And I just can't stop reading books. I just love to read. I'm, I'm like really changing. I'm really learning about stuff. Western culture, you know, philosophy. Wow. Wow. You know, certain key philosophers in history and stuff. You know, how Western cha culture changed. It's like, okay, I'm changing from the labourer on building sites and the drug addict, you know. Hmm. I'm really kind of shaping. So God's doing something with my mind. Would you say that if you haven't, if you didn't have the disability, would you have done that? Well, very good question. Maybe not. Okay. It was a turning point. We ah. all have big turning points, right? That yeah. was a major turning point, defining turning point. That was a catalyst for okay. me, basically getting educated and long journey. Um, you know, tried different things uh, during my thirties. I didn't. Going, didn't go to university because I was fighting drug addiction and I, I worked with this charity, went to Africa with this Christian charity just for a short period of time. Wow. And um, stayed in an African village and just doing bits and pieces because um, I didn't go to university. I didn't follow through with it. Sure, but how far did you get with college? Well, well, I, I did a, a course that would enable me to go to university. It's called an access to higher education. Okay. But I... I it, I didn't do it straight away. I was just doing bits and pieces. That's when you went to Africa? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I just, you know, a little while after. Um, hmm. I, I still trying to work out what to do, you know. I was really loving education. But I was changing as, also, as well, theologically as well, and just looking at the Bible differently, because I was in a wilderness, man. And it does things, you know. Hmm. It's like you have to depend on God. So it's like Jacob wrestling with the angel. Mm -hmm. God brought Jacob to a point where he was at rock bottom and he was just alone. It was just him and God. And God brings us all to that point where it's just you and him. And he takes things away. He strips you to the core and brings you to the end of yourself. Yeah. And it's like death. Yeah, yeah. Different kind of death. Yeah. And it's scary. You know, you've got nothing to lean on outside of yourself. You've got no tangible sources of security. I had no home, really, constantly moving, no family, no spiritual family, couldn't relate to the church. But God is doing a deep work of purging and refining and, you know, getting into the words. And, and then what happened then is that God started to bring young men into my life who needed to be taught and discipled. Mm. And they just started knocking on my door all times of the day and night. Wow. I didn't ask for that. 
How? Like once well, in a while? Well, I just met them in the local church that I was going to at the time. So they were Christian men? Yeah. Looking into Christianity? Yeah, but they had had background in drugs, right. funny enough. Yeah. <laughs> funny that, isn't it? Um, so, and also, you know, broken backgrounds, broken family background, just like me. Okay. But they look into me. Wow. They're thinking, you, man, you know the word, you know? It's like, we need you to teach us. And they, uh, you know, I started a Bible study with these guys. And um, so I did that. And it's funny enough, God started to bring young guys into my life who needed some kind of input. But I was still quite broken and trying to work things out myself. But it's like, no, God said, no, look, there you go. I want you to give to them. You were healed enough in those places that you can now offer from. Well, yeah, I guess, yeah. I mean, I mean I, you know, I'm still on crutches. I'm still leg caliper, you know, in pain and all the rest of it. Just fighting drug addiction in some ways to painkillers. Getting educated and all the rest of it. But you see, what I'm doing by getting educated, and also looking at the Bible in a different way, mm. I'm looking at kind of history of Western culture, ideologies, worldviews, things like that, apologetics, the defence of the faith, which is what that means. Wow. They're, they're looking to me and thinking, you know, yeah, we're interested in this stuff kind of thing. You know, anyway. Um, so um, I, I did eventually go to university. When? Um, in your 30s? Yeah. Okay, so we're still in your 30s now. Yeah, I'm still in my 30s, but toward the end of my 30s, I'm... I did eventually go to university, Glasgow University in Scotland. Right. Why did you study there? I studied philosophy, theology and sociology. Wow, look at this guy. Um, I knew you had degrees, but you know, you, you yeah. never really indulge me to talk enough about yourself in this way. So that's why we're doing this. It's more like for me. <laughs> so um, Yeah, but here's the thing, George. Um, <laughs> the same old pattern, I didn't stick with it, right? And did you get a degree? I did, but I got it in the States. And what happened was, was wow. that, well, I got one here as well. I did two degrees. But what happened was, um, I did the first term, Glasgow University, and the weather in Glasgow is not great. It rains a lot. <laughs> and that is bad for my legs. Oh, I see. Cold weather is like, means a lot of pain for, for me, for my legs. Okay. Because I hate winter. Winter's hard there. Mm. It's a grueling time for me with my legs. So anyway, um, I'm in Glasgow, got to know this Greek Cypriot guy, became really good friends. Not, he's not a Christian, but I'm going to a local church in Glasgow, central Glasgow. Really good church, very good preacher actually. Um, who actually was a guy that Martin Lloyd-Jones asked to actually take over from him and he actually declined the offer. I don't know who that is. What, Martin Lloyd-Jones? No, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Um, so anyway, I went to this church, but blah, blah, blah. I didn't stick with it. And um, it was a crazy time. A friend of mine died in messy circumstances. And I just thought, I just wobbled. I really wobbled. After one term, you mean? Yeah, I wobbled. And it was like, no, I don't want to do this. I want to do creative writing. I blew out the degree. I started doing creative writing. And then, randomly, I called my American friends, who I was in Hong Kong with um, a few years before. I just called them out of the blue. And they were wondering, where the heck have you been? We've been trying to trace you. We heard you was in India, you know. And because uh, I was really good friends with these two guys. And um, anyway, I said, look, I really would not want to come over to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. Right? Yeah. Albuquerque, New Mexico. I really would love to come over to Albuquerque. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wobbly. It's like, it's a bit crazy what's going on. 
Anyway, the, short, the long and short of it, at that time, I'm 37, 38, I blow out the degree in Glasgow. It took me all that time to get there, and I blow it out after the first term. The long and short of it, George, is that I ended up going to live in New Mexico, in the States, with my friends, and I did a degree in Biblical Studies, and I lived in the States. But here's the thing, before, just before I went to the States, I, I, I did a trip to Trinidad, where my mother wow. was from. I had okay. a trip to Trinidad. Wow. And it was wild. I actually met the guy that I think was my dad for the first time. <laughs> All of this was going on. It's wild stuff, man. Wow. It's like, whoa, I've blown out the degree in Glasgow, right? It wasn't just the weather, but, you know, I've... Uh, left all my belongings with this Greek Cypriot guy who was a really good mate of mine in Glasgow. And I bought a ticket, I sell my car and I bought a ticket to go to Albuquerque in New Mexico. Whoa, what's going on? Good friend of mine dies in, in, in messy circumstances. And then I go to Trinidad just before I go to America. And I'm in Trinidad. And I'm talking to my cousins that I wow. ha haven't seen since I was five years old. First of all, why did you go? <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, slow down. Yeah, I know. It's wild, isn't it? Why did you go? Why? Yeah. Ooh. A lot's going on in me at that time. I want to go and live with my friends in the States. I, I bought the ticket. I'm going. But I, I had a trip to Trinidad. And I just thought, you know what? I really want to go back to Trinidad. And... But when you say I had a trip, what brought that trip about? How did it happen? Do you know what? I, I can't, I'm trying to, I'm struggling to, to think why. That's okay. But do you think you but initiated I, that? Well, I started creative writing. Oh, okay. I gave up the degree because it's all abstract stuff, right? I, all of a sudden I'm doing creative writing. I'm walking around Glasgow, right? And I'm getting ideas for creative writing and I'm doing this creative writing thing. But different parts of me are starting to open up. Okay. So it's about your story now. Well, yeah, yeah, I start writing, creative writing, mm -hmm. right? Bro blown out the degree, I'm still in Glasgow. I've bought a ticket to the States, and yet I'm, I'm going to Trinidad as well. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Um, mm. But it's like, I can't, be live I can't be the insecure, unstable kid in my teenage and years and in my early 20s anymore. But it feels like instability and craziness. Mm. But there's some deep stuff going on there, George. And uh, anyway, I can't actually, off the top of my head realize uh, actually remember what was the motive to want to go to Trinidad something deep was going on though you see and anyway I went back I went to Trinidad and um, I had two weeks there and it was it was just man it was major stuff going on there I went I stayed with my second cousins hadn't seen them since I was five I didn't know them at all they were strangers so you made contact with them before you went to say can I come visit yeah I had I, I think I had I obviously had their contact details right okay you know in my address book at the time I guess and from your mum maybe yeah probably from my mum and it, it just you know but I didn't know them they were strangers I hadn't seen them since I was five when I went there for that traumatic boat trip that I told you about anyway I'm there I'm 38 now and I'm about to move to the States, but I'll take a trip to Trinidad. I'm with my cousins, I'm sitting around. They're pleased to see me. It's a bit weird for them, and it's weird for me. Anyway, I, I kind of had a, a two-week trip there and visited the grave of my grandparents, which was kind of strange and significant. But anyway, one day I'm sitting around, 
with my second cousins who live next door to my other cousins, right? Because they live very close, like your village in Bulgaria, maybe. And I'm sitting around, they said, you know what? We know your dad, he lives, he's from the next village. Why don't you try tracing him? I said, no. I said, I haven't even seen a picture of him. I'm not interested. And they kept on. I think you should do it. We know him. He's from the next village. Wow. I said, no, no, I don't see the point. There's no way I can trace him. But I, I had his name. Because my mum had given me his name, right? And he's from the next village. And I said, look, okay, give us the phone book, right? And I'm thinking, I just, I'm just doing this to keep him sweet and just to please them, you know. Thinking, there's no way I'm going to trace him. Never sent a picture of him, right? He could be anywhere on the planet. I'm looking at the phone book. I knew his name. I start making phone calls. I'm only on my second phone call. I'm talking to this woman. I'm explaining who I am. My name is Nigel Mohammed. I'm from Britain, blah, blah, blah. But my mum was from Freeport, the village of, that I'm in right now. And my, my dad's name is this. And she said, he's not here at the moment, but he'll be back later this evening. Did you want to see him? <laughs> it's like, well, you could scrape me off the floor with a teaspoon. <laughs> Are you sure? I was like, yeah, you, he's coming back this evening. Shall I pass the message on? I passed the message on. Two days later, he actually calls me. I'm in the shower. He actually calls me back. This guy, right? Who I think, could this be my dad? How wild is this? Right? Anyway, he actually phoned me. I talked to him. I arranged to meet him in a neutral village. He's from the next village, another village. My second cousin, Carl, he goes with me because he knows him. He makes it easier for me mm -hmm. a little bit. But then he, he goes away. So I'm with this guy. I spend two hours with him. Mm. And uh, I'm thinking, this is so wild. This could be my dad. This is like, this is like even more wild than the acid trip. <laughs> it's just wild because it's like a trip, you know. This is really happening. It's so wild. Anyway, I had two hours with the guy. He, he's a bit of a lame-o, actually. He's, he, he's not really admitting that he's my dad, but okay. I kind of like forced the issue. I said, no, look, I need to know, man. I need to know, of course, I need to know. And he said, well, it's a, it's a possibility. Again, it was a bit lame, but anyway. Did I, he look like you? Yeah, he was a real handsome dude, you know. Just... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I believe he was my dad. Um, had a weird, surreal two hours with him. Hmm. I haven't seen him since. What did you talk about? Well, I, I was talking about, like, um, I think you could be my dad and here's why. Okay. And because of my mother. This is my mother's name. And this is, these are the facts. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway. And he starts going into those facts that I'm giving him. And he's obviously making agreement with the facts that I'm giving. Yeah, I was 20. I, I blah, 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 had a relationship with her, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I was a very poor student and I couldn't afford to do it. So I got scared or whatever. And I, you know. Um, you know, and I, I look, I cut him a lot of slack, okay? I probably a bit too much. 
Um, but anyway, the long and short of it is I saw him for two hours. I think he was my dad and just a weird trip. So I went to Trinidad and I had a very significant trip. Hmm. And I met the guy that I believe was my dad. Wow. And I didn't know. Here's the thing. He lived in England, quite near to where my mum lived. Oh, wow. When? He'd lived there for 40 years. Wow. Where he lived in Surrey was near to where my mum was now living. How, I mean, this is like, this gets wilder and wilder. Did he, did he know that? No. Wow. That's <laughs> right. Okay, this is out there, man. Wow. <laughs> you know. And um, anyway, he'd lived there for 40 years. Married, had grown up kids, a bit younger than me. Anyway, um, so anyway, the long and short of it is I had a very significant trip in Trinidad. What did that give you? Well, it gave me a sense of connection in one sense. Okay. Because one day, my second cousin, Carl, who came with me to, with my dad, who I thought was my dad, he actually drew a family tree for me. Wow. And I've never had that in my life, ever. I mean, I lost it. I never, you know, lost it because I've moved in so many times. But you emerged from that with something. I, I came back. I went back to Glasgow because that's where I had my stuff. And I had to go then back to the States. And um, it was just a wild two weeks in Trinidad just before I moved to the States. And I met this guy who I thought was my dad. It's like I had to go. Do you think that this was empowering you for the next stage of life? Well, maybe. A little bit more rooted, at least, a little bit. Well, maybe, maybe, I mean, because it's like, just like you feel an affinity, well, I don't know, I think you probably feel an affinity with Bulgaria, in some Not way. as a nation or a country, but more like with the land and with um, my family. Yeah, yeah, people do feel some kind yeah. of affinity with where they've come from, if you're from another culture. You just do, you know, because it's about identity and belonging again, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But I never belonged to Trinidad, I never belonged to India, I never belonged to England. So I've got no nation that defines me. Although, I'm a citizen of the New Jerusalem and that is my true nation, yeah. actually. That's my true... It's funny how that works. Because with me, when you mention Bulgaria, it's like, I never see myself, I can't express myself in Bulgaria, I can't do these things. My work, I can't do it in Bulgaria, it just, there's no room for it. There. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want it, I, I don't... But I go there and I'm, I'm rooted there to draw. Because roots, when you look at... The, you don't have to see the roots, but you draw from that land. You draw yeah, yeah. everything that you are. Yeah, sure. And so the fruits of it are here in England. Yeah. Here in England, it's home. Yeah. This is home for me, and I love this nation, man. I just love them far more than I love the Bulgarian nation, even though Bulgarian well, is roots for me. Okay, it's interesting, because I remember reading something the other day. It said, uh, it's by this English poet, writer, who lives in Ireland. He said, in England, first thing they ask is, what do you do? In Ireland, they ask, where are you from? What village are you from? Even the village. Because he said, that's your roots. That's where you belong. That's yeah. who you are. Yeah. So they ask a different question. And I thought, wow, that's really important. Mm. That's really significant. Yeah. Because here it's like, it's all about what you do. It's actually quite surface and quite shallow. Because you're so much more than what you do. Actually. Of course, yeah. You know? Of course. And again, it's belonging, identity, who you are. And so, you know, for me now, belonging... You know, I went to the States, I lived there. Mm. But uh, if you have the roots, just to say, if you have the, the way you're from, which I had to go and redeem it because I never really felt connected to my dad, and, but now I do. Um, if you have that, then you're okay with what you do. 
But here's the, exactly. I'm okay with what you do. Yeah. I want to do it. I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me. But here's the thing. Um, I mean, now, this is, again, many years later. I'm kind of at my late 30s uh, in this next chapter of my story. And I'm living in the States, and um, um, I did a degree. I, I didn't plan on doing a degree. So I, you stayed with your friends? Well, I only had a two-week ticket, but I didn't plan on coming back. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of those. <laughs> He's yeah. one of them. Yeah, yeah, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Nowadays, <laughs> but, but anyway, I, I just, um, the long and short of it is, is that they said, look, why don't you go to seminary, maybe do a degree in biblical studies. So I went down to Mexico. Went to the in Ameri Mexico? Well, no, I went to the American consulate in Mexico to apply for a visa so that I didn't have to fly all the way back to England. Oh, I see. Right? So it's just down the road, four hour drive down to Mexico, over the border in Juarez, Mexico. I was thinking they would have loved you down there. Well, they did. I, they actually held me on the border, actually. Oh, wow. I got stuck on the border of Mexico. Anyway, another story. Lots of stories, George. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's all about. <laughs> and because um, uh, this seminary this uh, accepted me, so I had the paperwork. They accepted me for, got a visa from the American consulate so I could live in the States. I could live in Albuquerque, in New Mexico. So I was there. And, and again, that's another story of family and belonging and... Uh, okay, so you lived mm. there with those people and that's why you did your degree in Biblical but Studies. But I'll tell you what, I had more love from people in the States, from my friends in the States, than I'd ever had in England, funny enough. Interesting. Yeah. Because they're, they're a bit more open, a little bit, without wanting to generalise. Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody, you know, nations have national characteristics, don't they? Yeah. And the English are very, you know, it takes you years to get to know the English. It really does. They're, they're, they're just closed. They're, they're, there is some truth in stereotypes. <laughs> the British, you know, reserved, distance. Well, yes, there is some truth in that. Well, I mean, stereotypes exist for a reason. Yeah. And nowadays, yeah, people yeah. don't want, because very often it's, so. Oh, don't be racist, don't say about minorities. So yeah. It's okay to talk about the English, but don't, don't, don't stereotype other people. And I think... Why not? They exist for a reason. But anyway, yeah, so, um, how long did you stay in Albuquerque? Well, I was only there for a year, but I'll tell you what, it was one of the biggest mistakes of my life coming back to England. I, I regretted it profoundly. And I tried to get back about four times. And I went back four times to try and live there again. When did you finish your degree? I finished my degree, um, I started it in 1998. I finished my biblical studies degree in 2000. It was only two years because I transferred credits. Oh, I see. Um, from what I'd done at Crawley College, I transferred credits to that degree. So what's that? I mean, I don't know much about that. Uh, is it like bachelor? Is it's it... called, it's called, it was an undergraduate degree, but to be honest with you, it wasn't a bona fide undergraduate degree because I only did it in two years and they just wanted to get you out of there. Uh, they just want to graduate as quick as possible. So which... what do you become with that? Oh, yeah, right. What do you become? Well, Biblical I... scholar? Well, no, no. You're having a laugh, George. Aren't you? I don't know, um, honestly. I no, know. no, like of course pastor. not. No, well, I, I had a degree in Biblical Studies, but, but I, after a year, I again sabotaged, man, and I wow. left the States. Wow. Because it's like, this is family. This is the first thing I've had since since YWAM, back in 88 in Hong Kong. But it's really painful. But everywhere I go is families. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful because they love me, man. Mm. And they, they do. I had so a real you're... tight bond with Brad and with my friend Brad and his wife Donna. They're just beautiful, lovely people. And they love me, man. And their children, their three daughters, they loved on me big time. 
So you enacted the childhood wound. Families ex- are broken. <laughs> is this how it is? Well, yeah, yeah. Because you know everyone... Um, George, you should be a psychology professor. <laughs> you need to go into psychology, man. Well, someone <laughs> said, I don't know who it was, I think some motivational speaker guy said, everyone has an emotional home, right? Where you feel mm. at home emotionally. Yeah. doesn't matter if it's good or bad. And so if some people say, well, emotionally, families are to be broken. Families break you. Families break. They abandon you. So you have to act like that. So and if, it, if they don't abandon you, you make sure you do something to make them abandon you. You know what I mean? So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Families yeah. break. Boom, you're broken. I don't know. I just see that pattern. Yeah, there is a pattern, of course. And lots of families are broken and break and wound their children, but not all families. No, no, no. But um, I mean, for you personally, if yeah, this so, is your yeah, in the narrative, right. families abandoned. Yeah, yeah, families I, yeah. Break. I mean, obviously for me, because I, I, after I came out the womb, I was abandoned. You know? So you did that again in America. Yeah, I sabotaged and I rationalized it away, you know. Of course, yeah. You know, and that's you what have we to do because men live in the head, right? In yeah. the logical brain, you know. Okay. That's where men hide out in the West, tend to, you know, the Western kind of mind, Western personality. It's like it's very predictable, scientific, yeah. enlightened, you know, controlled, um, logical, you know. Um, but, you know, so I kind of rationalized away and um, they did mm. their hardest to keep me there. Mm. And they, they really, didn't want me to go and they were hurt I hurt them because I had really close tight bonds with them my friends in Albuquerque and I had a, I actually had family there mm. I can't believe I ran away from it man and I'll tell you what as soon as I got back almost a week two weeks after I'm walking around a park in Brighton I'm still doing the biblical studies degree it's a distance learning course and I'm thinking what the heck have I done I had like a moment, I thought, what the heck have I done? I've got no one here, I've got nothing here, and I had everything there. What the heck am I doing here? You know? And, and anyway, I got my head down, and I did the degree. And I oh, fit. amazing. Okay? And distance learning, you had to be very distant, uh, disciplined. And I and distant. Uh, distant, yeah, distant. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Freudian slip there. No, you mustn't be British. <laughs> distant and cold and detached no 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 i meant you had to be disciplined yeah yes just uh, rewind that freudian slip there by the way um yeah so i finished i really plugged i treated it like a job i nine hours a day i plugged in man and i got a good degree got high mm-hmm. distinction got a biblical studies degree with high distinction okay. but it's like what can i do now by this time i'm thinking i want to teach yeah, I'm thinking, you know what? I really like to teach. I've done a lot of reading, a lot of studying, apologetics, Francis Schaeffer stuff, you oh, know, wow. worldviews, a lot of history, you know, in what I'd studied on the course I did at Crawley College and, and in my own time, my own life as well. Mm. And then I got, got this degree, did a lot of worldviews on the degree, worldview stuff, apologetics. Okay. Um, and in the church I was in, in Albuquerque. And the pastor of the church I went to in Albuquerque was great, just a great guy. So when you're back in, in England, you wanted to become a teacher now? I'm interested, I'm thinking about it. And the long and short of it is, George, is I'm back in England, I've got the degree in Biblical Studies, but I can't do anything with it because it's not accepted in the UK. And I checked it out and I said, no, it's not recognised in the UK. Because it was a distance learning course and it was to do with the accreditation. But it's like, I'm thinking... Are you sure? I've gone through years of waiting to get to university. Yeah, come on. I go to Glasgow, I blow it out, 
had a weird surreal trip in Trinidad. I'm living in the States. I do a degree in biblical studies. I go back to the UK, sabotage the family thing again, and I can't use the degree. That's a good summary so far <laughs> of your life in education. Yeah. And so, so what happened? The thing is, why do we sabotage? That's the thing. Yes. But, you know, and lots of, you know, we, we all do it. We're yeah. living out the wound still. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm now... What are you, 39? 39. 40, 39. And I, I, I have to think, what the heck am I going to do? I've gone through all of this and I can't use this degree in the States. And I'm interested in teaching. So what I did was, um, I took time out. And what I did was, I, the long and short of it is, I had to do a second degree, right? And transfer some credits uh, to this second degree. And I did a degree in cultural studies. Wow. Okay, because I was interested in, in culture, in, in the history of culture and, and apologetics and engaging with culture. So what degree was it? University? I did, yeah, yeah. I went to Liverpool University, like in Liverpool, <laughs> where the Scousers kind of hang out, you know, you know what I mean? That's supposed to be a Scouse twang, by the way. It's great stuff. Um, anyway, so I went to Liverpool and um, did a cultural studies, well, media cultural studies. Um... And I was there for a year, and uh, I was enjoying it, blah, blah, blah. I met this woman that I, man, I was digging her. <laughs> and I was digging her scene, you know. <laughs> but it was so painful, man. What was? Really painful. Well, the situation with this woman. Okay. Her name was Kira. And um, if, if you're listening, Kira, I, I'm telling the story, actually. Because um, you are part of that story. Whether you like it or not. Whether you like it or not. But anyway, um, I was still still at that father wound, man. That attachment wound to women going on. And look, don't get me wrong, I'm a people person. I can meet people. I can talk to lots of people from all walks of life. You know, I've, I've travelled a lot and, you know, on my own. India, different places. And, you know, I, I have confidence with people. I can go anywhere and hold my own. But with women, it's a different kind of thing, isn't it? You know what I mean? Anyway, um, I did a second degree in Liverpool. Even after the first year, I sabotage again. And I come back to Brighton. Finished you mean the... you didn't finish the degree? Or did yes, you... I did. Oh, but you I... did? Yeah, but I finished it in Brighton. Okay. Yeah, I finished it in Brighton. Oh, wow. Came back and I did a different thing. Still cultural studies, but I did cultural memory. And I studied slave history and Irish history. Goodness me. So how many degrees have you got? No, I got two degrees, but I've got a teaching qualification, which is called a PGCE, which is a postgraduate certificate in education. Okay, so tell me, how many degrees? No, I've, only got, I've only got two degrees. What are they? One in biblical studies? Yeah, and one in cultural studies. One in cultural studies. Yeah. And you have a teaching... Teaching qualification. That's a third one, that's separate. Yeah, yeah. So I te I'm a qualified further education teacher as well. And is this what you started doing? Yeah, this came out of, out of my journey, out of my story. When did you start doing it? Right away after coming back from Liverpool? Well, I did the second degree, yeah, mm -hmm. finished it in Brighton. Then I had to do a, another year of study, a postgraduate certificate in education, a teacher training course. Okay. Again, very intense. So I had six years of intense study from 1999, um, you know, about, yeah, 1999, for about five or six years of intense study. I just kept on plugging away. Wow. And with not many gaps in between. Um, because uh, I thought, you know, I just got to go for this. I just got to do it. Because I thought, okay, by the time that I, I do this, I will have this. And I'll be a qualified teacher in this. That's what I'm going for. 
And I did it. So you did it? I did it, man. Wow. So I did it. And I'm a qualified teacher. And um, what did you teach and where? Sociology. I taught sociology, wow. which was related to my cultural studies degree. Okay. But I have a theology degree, a biblical studies degree, and I haven't really used that. And I, I really would like to use that as well. But I, I'm working okay. on something at the moment that I'm doing, uh, jumping the gun a bit. But uh, okay. so, so that was my story um, up until, you know, uh, there's been a lot of changes. You know, suicide attempts, wheelchair, uh, you know, drug addiction, um, identity, belonging, family, you know, the pain going into childhood. But then when you start to connect with who you're becoming because of what you've had to overcome, by the grace of God, I hasten to add, when you start to connect with who you're becoming, that's who you belong to. You belong to your authentic self that has been shaped and forged in the fires of your own pain and suffering. Mm. And that is not for sale. It's non-negotiable. You do not negotiate who you really are. It's not for sale, man. Not to anyone or anything. And that then becomes an empowering thing because it's been forged out of some very deep pain. Mm -hmm. um, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, all kinds of pain. But then when you get that glimpse and you start to crystallise the essence of who you are becoming because of what you've overcome, you hold on to that for dear life. And that's your non-negotiable. Mm. But then your belonging, like Bernard Brown was saying, it's you're free only when you realise you belong no place and every place. And no place at all. But the price is high <laughs> because it's like, I still don't fit in and belong because it's like a maverick. A maverick yeah. is somebody who refuses to be branded by anything external. Because it's like you've you, you've become acquainted with who you are. You're connected with that person. And that's who you are, man. And that's who you carry in life. And you don't negotiate that. That's your non-negotiables. That's who I am. And actually, I like who I am. Hmm. Yeah. How many people can say that? But then you have to offer that. Yeah. But that's another story which we can get to another time. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's amazing that you should say I like who I am because I never liked who I was. And only in the last decade, I started to like the man in the mirror. <laughs> but if you hate well, yourself, how far are you going to get? How's divided? <clears throat> well, that's the thing about pain. You know, even physical pain. I mean, you know, pain is saying something. Something's not wrong. Something's sorry. Something's not right. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what pain is saying. Something is seriously wrong. Yeah. Because you're hurting so badly. Okay, yeah. Right? Give us some advice on that. Now, I mean, it's time to stop here yeah, because yeah. we're doing about Maybe. 20 years at installment and I want to honor your story. I don't want yeah. to rush through anything. So yeah. you being in your, in your early 40s, is it? That's why we're going to stop. I was in my early 40s, early 40s when at you're that teaching. time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, 45 when I became a teacher. Okay. We can stop there if you like. We can stop there. But before we draw this to a close, um, because pain is a huge theme of this conversation, has been a huge theme. Yeah. And um, in the Western world, we have many ways of coping with pain. So, for example, if you're a group leader like, like you are when I met you and, and I have inner pain, you say something that triggers my pain and I, it's easy for me to cut you off. I just, I'm just not going to see you again. Or um, 
if situation at home is not good, I'm just going to get divorced. I mean, think, things are easy when that pain speaks loudly and you say, well, no, 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 it's not the pain I need to deal with, it's the, the triggers, is the people, is the communities, is the yeah. um, external triggers. So <clears throat> we just cut them off instead of dealing with the pain. Yeah, although, don't get me wrong, I, I, it's very important to not be oversimplistic. Yeah. Uh, and just say, oh, well, pain is, is a good thing. You can learn from pain, blah, blah, blah. Right? How, you can't be glib and mm. flippant and oversimplistic about pain because pain threatens to take you out, man. Nearly did with you. And it nearly it? did with me. It nearly did with me too. <clears throat> it does. It threatens to take you out. And I mean take you out proper. Right? Um, <clears throat> let's not minimise it. Mm. We must not minimise it. The world is full of people with pain. Yeah. Um and full of addicted people who are numb in their pain because they're numb in their pain because the pain is so overbearing they can't yeah. live with it so you know let's 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 have it right and and tell it as it is yeah you know but if you invite Jesus Christ into that because of what he did on the cross he suffered as well sure but that's not good enough because you know you speak to religious people they say well I've done that <laughs> You know well, what I mean? You look at someone who's yeah. shaped in pain, and we all are. So there's only one journey for someone who needs redemption, is to actually enter the pain. And religious people have that shield. You talk to them about pain, and they say, well, no, no, no. I belong to Jesus. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm asking you about emotional pain. Well, yeah, but, you know, as we know, there's a, a world of difference between religion and reality. <laughs> and we want reality. But reality is painful. What was it about the wave that you said? Well, the wave is like... So imagine you equated that to emotional pain. Yeah, yeah. If you were, if you, you know, you're swimming in the sea. It's a beautiful day. It's just a, it's just an analogy, uh, a hypothetical sort of scenario, and then suddenly out of nowhere there is this huge mega, thirty foot, forty foot wave, and it suddenly is like right there. Do you know how to avoid that wave catching up on you and throwing you like a rag doll, tossing you onto the shore like a rag doll? Do you know how to avoid that? How? You swim as fast as you can toward the wave and you dive underneath at the bottom point and you come up the other side wow. and you miss the wave. Wow. That wave is your pain. Wow. It's your deepest pain, your childhood pain, whatever is your deepest pain. And you have to go toward it. You have to move toward that. Pain. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it's mega. It feels like this mega wave and it's like it's going to I'm coming to swallow you up mm. and take you away into oblivion. And that's what pain feels, your deepest pain feels like. It's like that mega wave. But you know, I remember having a conversation with an ex-US Marine about that wave, about that analogy. And he has a men's group of about 70 guys. Uh, and this was a few years ago. And I gave him that analogy of the, of the wave and it hit him, man. He really got it. <laughs> and he went and told his guys, that he, the, the men's group, the, the men's ministry. And it felt actually really good. So like, I'm talking to this US Marine. It's like he's seen a few things, right? Seen a few waves as well. He's seen a few waves, exactly. Yeah, touche, George. Yeah, stand up comic, obviously, on the sign. Um, so, but his name is Brad, another Brad. But um, do you know what? I, I remember that guy because I was into men's ministries like you at that time. And I found him online and I phoned him. And he was a complete stranger. And I thought, well, this could be a bit weird. We talked for four hours, man. Wow. Four hours. Wow. Just connected straight away. Because when you go toward the pain, you find your authentic self. You can't be you can't be religious or false anymore. Yeah. It's like no, I am a very broken individual, and yet, 
it doesn't define me. Mm. Grace, the grace of Jesus mm. defines me. And your authentic self that you find yeah. from the other side helps you connect to others, doesn't it? it? Exactly. So that's the remedy for yeah. the disconnect that you've suffered. Yeah, yeah. Because your authenticity relates to the word author. That's where you find your voice. Oh, wow. Authentic, author, relates to your voice. Wow. So authenticity is connected to author who finds your voice. That's profound. Who finds their voice. Yeah, find your voice. stuff. Thank you, my friend, once so, again. So next time, man, it's been thank really you. great. It's been a great honor. Been a privilege thank you. and an honor. So thank you, George. So next time, man, we will we chew the fat and we'll see what comes up next time. Very, yeah? I'm very grateful, man. Cheers, man. I'm grateful. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah so am I, George. Forgive me this space. <laughs>